Hey everybody, I'm Tom Corbett. And I'm Justin St. Louis. And this is Uncommon Deeds. Cold outside, Justin. Oh my god! As we uh, as we record the open for this week's episode, it is Tuesday. Yeah, yeah, Tuesday. We uh, actually we didn't. My kids didn't have school today. Well, for a myriad of reasons, but they actually postponed the canceled school today because of the cold wind chill temperatures. It's currently none degrees in Bridport right now. Justin, I hit the road. This past weekend. Yeah. Thankfully. All day. All damn day. All day. Yep. We recorded multiple. Now, we recorded for our one-year special. That'll be February 11th, the show. Right. So We're on math. episode whatever, 49. Either way, the point is, it's not going to be a guess the guest. We're going to let you know ahead of time. Yep. And we're going to build up to it try to blow it out a little bit here for the one-year episode. And we're going to do our one-year episode on episode 53. Right. So we're going to complete a year's worth of episodes through 52 and then celebrate a year because it'll be February 11th, which is one day before we actually aired our first episode a year ago. So Yeah, we did Yeah, the 12th of last year. So we're waiting till episode 53, but we're going to unveil it early. We're going to have a build-up. Gonna have some cool stuff. Have we ever been four weeks ahead on anything? I mean, well, technically we're not. Because... Technically, we have a two-week, two or three-week gap to fill, but we've got that one in the can. We've got the one for four weeks from now in the can, <laughs> and we have this week's done. Yeah, uh, we just got to fill episodes fifty, fifty-one, and fifty-two. Mm-hmm. Either way, I'm proud of us. Yes, and I will say. Recording two in one day, especially when you're driving yeah. multiple places, was a lot. Yeah, we just did the actually the calculated the miles. And from my house to Tom's to the two places that we went to record and then back to Tom's to drop them off and then back to my house was what, 180 something miles? 186. Four and a half hours of driving. It didn't seem like it. Well, we had lovely chats. Yeah, we were good company. We learned some stuff, not only from our guests, but acquaintances of our guests who may or may not have been a guest on this show who may or may not have just bought a race car that we found out about. I'm just, you know. But you hear about in that episode... (laughs) You might hear about it before then, because it you doesn't might. sound like they're really trying to keep it keep it a secret. So I don't right. know if we'll actually break news or not. Yeah. Let's maybe not do it this week, but you might know by next week. Who knows? We'll see. Yeah. But no, we had a great time, and it's always fun we, when we can get out and do these in person, and God only knows. Next time we'll be able to, for multitudes of reasons... You know, just said Justin's, his daughter's got to go get tested tomorrow. All my kids had to be tested in the last couple of days. 
Uh, anyway, today's guest <laughs> is one I know, Justin. You have been chasing. Put in work for a few months, at least. Yeah, since mid-August. Since our Steve Poolin episode, whenever that mm-hmm. was. Yep. And, and that was like 28 or 27 or 28, 29, something like that. But, you know, just kind of juggling. And this was one we really kind of had to do in person. So we mm-hmm. had to find the right time that worked. And the fact that we were able to get it done and on a day when we were able to do a second one was was sweet. And this, our conversation with Mike was enlightening and... Somewhat has, frightening. Yeah. And, you know, not saying that to, you know, shock value or anything. Like, it went into some dark places yeah. towards the tail end of this podcast. And it was interesting because we didn't know. We knew a little bit, obviously, but we didn't know how deep it went. And in person is it's interesting when you hear those type of stories and you're in person and you're looking at them, not through a camera and a laptop. Yeah, it definitely got our attention. Um, and like, no, we weren't expecting that at all. Um, and I was really grateful that he opened up to us. You know, there's a lot, we've, we've had so many great responses um, this week leading up to the show of holy crap you got mike barry like i haven't heard from that guy in 40 years haven't seen him since the late 80s oh my god it's been since 1992 or whatever and you know i think we're pretty proud that we tracked him down and and he that he let us in um and that not only did he let us in but he opened up like he was i don't want to spoil anything because this is such a amazing i don't know if confessional is the right word but maybe story it's a great story yeah yeah and we Um, knew once we met him when we got there we met him did it from his shop and soon as he started kind of talking like oh this is going to be good you know he's a dynamic speaker yeah he's not quiet we had to tell him to shut up before we started recording (laughs) it's like wait 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 we gotta set up let's Get the equipment. <laughs> he told some great stories before we hit record. <laughs> we got him to retell one or two of them. Yeah. So Mike Barry has always been listed as from Bolton, Vermont, which is my hometown. So I've always had interest in in his career. He he finished his racing pretty much before I started coming. I was four years old when he came back to ACT. And I'm not spoiling anything by saying this. He got cancer after or was diagnosed with cancer three or four races into his comeback in 87. And then nobody really saw him again. And then he ran some Bush North races early nineties. And that's pretty much been it, but I've always been really intrigued by his career. He won the Oxford 250, not a lot of racers out of Bolton, Vermont. And the ones that, the ones that we know, weren't that good <laughs> so you your dad <laughs> and tony wheelock <laughs> and every time and every time tony wheelock would wreck me he'd drive his lawnmower down the street and mow my lawn to make up for it and he did that several times 
I think you tell that story in this episode. I think you did. Did I? I, I don't know. I know. If I, did, you, I, know I heard was, that story that day. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe if it, was it was in the car. Maybe it was anyway. in the car. Maybe it was in the episode. Maybe it was in the forty-five minute talk after the episode stopped recording. I don't know. Uh, uh, but but my berry is up on this pedestal here. Yeah. And we've been gabbing your ear off here for a bit, so we're going to go ahead and get to the interview. Enjoy. Uh, let us know what you think on all the socials. I want to thank all our sponsors for today. Barry Tile, Morrison and Clark. Check out their Facebook page. Get an idea. All types of flooring. Tiles, of course. Experts there to help you make the right decisions so you don't make your house look stupid. <laughs> that should be there. I hope Dave is listening. Oh, that's great. Uh, we planned to stop down there in Barrie on, was it Saturday? Sunday. No, sa- yeah, Saturday. I don't know what Saturday. day we did that. It was Saturday. Over the weekend. And uh, I, the guest that we had lined up kind of fell through. And again, thanks to Mike Barry because it was a last minute call on Friday night. I was like, hey, you busy tomorrow? And he's like, no, come up. So we did plan to stop and see uh, the showroom in, um, for Barry tile, but it just didn't work out, but we will get down there because Tom has already started to work on some more interviews in that zone for us. And we are looking forward to getting down there and, and actually, you know, being able to touch and feel. And also Bushies generator sales and service. Hey, it's winter. It's freaking negative 30 degrees with a wind chill right now. Right. If you got kids, even if you don't have kids, you need a plan B if the yeah. power goes out. Uh-huh. And who better to see than the number one Briggs and Stratton dealer in the state? Um, ben Bushy knows what he's talking about, and he's going to help you out. And they also are a great um, dealer of Kohler generators, and they will help you find the right one. They'll They'll sell it to you. They'll install it for you. And then they'll service and maintain it for you. And not only those two brands, but all makes and models um, from small to big. Um, they specialize in propane generators, which is pretty cool. Um, and they serve Vermont and New Hampshire, of course. But they're also around New England and New York. And the best part is Ben's a racer. So, Without further ado, it is time now for Justin to make today's introduction. Our guest this week is a guy that took everybody by surprise about uh, 40 years ago, and we haven't seen a whole lot of him since, but uh, we're glad to catch up with him. Vermont's first Oxford 250 winner, and uh, we'll get to the rest of it as we go along, but it's a, a pleasure to be in the shop of Mike Barry. Well, right, thank man. you. Yeah. Thanks for having us. You're more than welcome. Yeah. This is an impressive shop, too. <laughs> well, Thanks. It's something we've been working on a while. It's got some memorabilia, some memories. Most everything in here that you look at probably just looks silly to some, but to me, it, there's a story behind it. I mean, to give context for the people, obviously, this is an audio and not a visual. There are a lot of trophies here, and there's even more trophy buck and bear and elk over there. And my God, this is an impressive display. 
Yeah, it's kind of a collection of a jack of all trades and a master of none, so yeah. to speak. But no, I've I've always enjoyed a lot of different things from you know hunting the outdoors, of course, the racing, motorcycles, boats, um, scuba diving. That, that's what makes me a jack of all trades and a master of none. Well, you've got <laughs> yourself sprinkled out pretty good, though. That's good. Now, when we came in here, you said this is where money is spent and dreams are crushed. So explain what we're doing in this building here. Well, just because of that. <laughs> I, I spend a lot of time here, so I, I, I think too much, and sometimes I act out those thoughts. <laughs> so then those thoughts, when you get older, and usually entail more expensive toys. So if you have a lot of toys, you need a place to house them. If you have a place to house them, then you need more toys to fill it. So it's kind of a vicious cycle. So then you find yourself at a point where the, the toys, the equipment, whatever you want to call it, um, can consume you. So I've been trying to ply the brakes and, and even put it in reverse with absolutely no success. So I really <laughs> think maybe therapy, maybe you guys can help, but I, this, I, I definitely need something. <laughs> this show has become kind of a therapy session for people. We've worked some stuff out. I believe that because <laughs> it's working. <laughs> Justin is my therapist, yeah. and he's very cheap. So yeah, he is. It works out well. Yeah. Now, be careful. You might get what you pay for. Oh, he gets it. Trust me. Yeah. Whenever I'm having troubles, I send Justin a message. He's <laughs> like, so you should talk to someone. I am. Yeah. That's who I'm. Oh, that's me. Uh, so usually we kick this off. When did motor? When do you remember at least motorsports coming into your life? As a as a young kid. I remember my father was working in New Hampshire for a construction company. So we rented a house up there. And I remember going to a dirt track as, I mean, a fairly young child. And I was literally mesmerized. I, I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. So that kind of piqued it. Then the fairgrounds, the sprint cars on Friday and Saturday were just in something. Yeah, in Essex. Just something I look forward to. I, we would sit up in the bleachers and, and they would power down in turn one, throttle up, and dirt would fly all the way up into the bleachers. Just, and I've always been, I guess, a motorhead, gearhead, whatever you want to call it. My family was into snowmobiles, you know, anything with a motor, um, like most people living in the country. So uh, uh, the first time I actually started racing was snowmobiles. And I'm trying to remember what year that was, and, and I won't remember, so there's no sense even trying so I got involved in snowmobiles. During that, I met Jamie Olby, who's a really nice guy, and at some point graduated to automobiles. And, and it's kind of funny because, and, and I say this for anybody that's listening that doesn't think they have the tools to get involved in racing. My first race shop was a bunch of two-by-fours nailed together with clear plastic over them. I don't even remember how the how far the closest electrical outlet was, say nothing about a you know, compressor or a welder or anything else. So that's literally how I started. Um, I bought a car and trailer, and I believe, it, I could be wrong, but I think it was, it was $500 or less from Jim Barton in Milton, Vermont. And I towed that trailer with a half-ton Chevy pickup. The first race I went to was up somewhere in Canada. It, it wasn't that far because I don't think I could have made it very far. It was actually more dangerous loading the car on the trailer than probably during the race because it was such a dilapidated piece of crap. And it was probably two and a half feet off the ground. So had I 
misjudged whatever, I would have probably been there for the rest of my so-called career. Uh, I remember the first race, the right front tire was all but flat. I don't even think I had a way to blow it up. I, I think I went there by myself with, with possibly a girlfriend, and, and that was it. And that's literally how it started. What do you remember about the first time being in the car, headed out in practice? Nervous? Excited? Oh, shit? Dumbfounded? Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, there's so many of them, it's, it's hard to say. And, and with the multiple head trauma I suffered recently, I probably won't remember anything. It's half partly a joke. You know, I, I guess the things that I remember the most was at Thunder Road... I, I believe it was even in the eight car that, that tells you how bad my memory is. And going down the back straightaway in practice, going half speed, turning the wheel, and the car would literally go straight. Thinking, how in heavens are we going to make this corner at race speed if we can't make it at slow speed? But that was kind of one of the few things I actually remember being in the car. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm sure there are many others that I've just completely forgotten about. But it wasn't until, and that's, that brings up another point. I always believed you had to make a bond with the car. I would, mm-hmm. in the shop, I would sit in the car for, seemed like hours, but literally just sit in it and try to bond with it. And, and I know the cars that I had success in, when I got in them, they were like putting on a pair of used shoes or a glove that you had worn quite a bit. They were extremely comfortable. You almost you know, like molded or, or formed right as one unit when you got in, and and that didn't this didn't come to me till you know more recent, but I do recall being extremely comfortable when I got in the car, almost almost protected, which was you know a little naive, but those are kind of the things I, I really remember the most. Are you a guy that could take a nap when you're lined up on pit road? In the car? In those cars. In the cars I felt comfortable yet. Yeah. yeah, even in during red flags, you know, any time. I, I easily could have taken a nap. I, I never, which is strange. There was two times I never really felt nervous. It was in the car or when I was way back in the woods. Uh, I never was afraid of getting lost in the woods, even if it was at night. I just never had that that fear. When I was a kid, I used to take my bike in the middle of the night when we lived in Colchester, bike a couple miles down to Mallon's Bay and go down in the swamps with my bow in the night and chase carp and, and different species of fish around. And I, for some, it scared the hell out of my parents. I'll, I'll be yeah. honest with you. Would I let one of my children do something like that? No. Um, but it never, I never seem to have that, that fear factor. I don't know why. Now, were there times in a race car where I was like, whoa, this might not be quite as safe as I thought it was? And, and the answer is yes. And one of them was at Martinsville, Virginia, when we were waiting to go out for either qualifying or practice. And, and down there, there were the modifieds of late models. So we were sitting in the car fairly close to the track when, when the cars were going by at speed. And having a mechanical background and engineering degree and everything else, I was looking at the speed of the cars. Of course, I knew the weight of the cars. And I was looking over at the door bars of our car, which at the time probably weren't sufficient. And I was like, oh, my God, this could hurt. But it just was short-lived. 
soon as the car started, boom, that just went away. My, I think my fear of losing or failing was far greater than any fear of getting hurt. I think you have to have that as a driver. I, I don't know how you could perform any other way. Or at I least mean, successfully. I mean, you don't show up to fail, right? Well, I don't know. You don't I, show I, up to die either, but you no. don't show up to fail. Yeah, but, I mean, you look at it, you see people who come who probably know they have no chance. And yeah. Well, in lower divisions, sure. probably more so, who are right in the back every <laughs> week, and they have fun. But Yeah, and I think that's why I didn't enjoy it. And, and I think, quite frankly, everything has a, has a plus and a minus or a pro or a con. And I, and I think that's one of them. If you become so obsessed with either being afraid of failing or wanting to win, you can really get lost in the whole journey. Uh, and, and I learned, I, I taught, that lesson was taught to me more in the outdoors with hunting. Um, you know, there was a time when, I mean, you just had to get a deer. I, I mean, it was just like rite of passage. You weren't a man. I mean, there was this whole thing. So it became stressful and competitive. But over time, maybe it's age, I, I, maybe it's, I don't know, when you get quite a few, it, it, the, that goes away. But I just remember it like, hey, you, you're going to have to smell the roses here because the, the goals are too few and far between, and, and they really don't mean that much to you. So there really is no option here. You can continue to beat yourself up for a goal that even when you achieve it, you're really not going to get the satisfaction you're looking for, or you can sit down and enjoy the, the journey. So I, I miss out on that, and, and, and in my defense, part of it, like I mentioned to you early, during the competitive years or the more successful years, especially with the eight car, I, I mean, I was trying to um, secure a mechanical engineering degree. So it was it was a little more stressful than I, than I really wish I would have bitten off at that time. Yeah, we were talking about that before we started recording. I mean, that 1980 season when you were just unbeatable, was sounds like maybe the worst time you had in racing. No, because I was pretty young and stupid, yeah. and I had a lot more ambition. So I don't know if it ever, I ever realized it. I just thought that was normal. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't until after that I think I really, the after effects of it, the way it, it somewhat burnt me out, that I said, hmm, you know, maybe that wasn't the right approach. But at that time, I didn't see really any other options. I, I wanted the degree for any advancement in my career or, or future potential earnings, and I wanted to race too. So I, there wasn't like option B. Yeah. Where did the uh, where'd the work ethic come from? Your parents, you know, grinders like that. I I, I would say yeah, the whole family. Um, certainly we're blue collar, hardworking, um, individuals. I don't recall anybody that I would have considered, you know, lazy. Um, I do think I was bitten a little harder with it. And and I don't say that as a star, if anything, it might've been a negative. Um, but I don't really know. I, I really don't know. Well, of course, when I was going to school, I really wasn't doing anything other than school working, um, to help pay for it, even though I had saved quite a bit of money and was using that bankroll to put myself through school. Um, the race car, um, 
And those, those were the three things. I mean, working in any off hour, and by work I was working for Pizzagalli Construction. Uh, I think at that time, mostly in the mechanical shop on small engines and stuff, and 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 they were unbelievable people. I mean, I mean not only in the the racing, but as examples. I, I mean, they are incredible family. I mean, they will tell you what you need to hear, but they will also show you through example. And, and I, I cannot say enough good about the entire family from top to bottom. Um, they have been so generous and so helpful to me. It has been in more ways than they will ever, ever realize. Let's start from the beginning with your racing. And this is the earliest picture that I could find. It's a white hurricane car up at uh, Catamount. There's a checkered flag sticking out the window, too, the number 52. Uh, you must have bought that photo. <laughs> no, I, honestly, I, I, I'm i surprised. I, I really don't remember winning that many races in that division. I think that was a heat race, I, to be fair. <laughs> good. I'm glad you pointed that out yeah. yesterday, because I was thinking it was the Daytona 500. I wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> No, that we had a pretty short career in there, and, and a lot of it was because of the the driver continually totaled the cars. I found those pictures too. Yeah, I'm sure you did. So I figured I'd head you off at the pass. But anyways, which there again, that's another pro and con. Had we not wrecked the car, we probably wouldn't have kept moving up, even though we were completely full of naivete, if that's even a word. But we were we were quite naive at the time, to say the least. And you were. Coming from Bolton, right? So you're pretty much as close as you can be to being smack between Catamount and Thunder Road. Well, that's a good point. I, I can't say as I ever thought about that, but unfortunately it would have been a little better had there been an exit there. Yeah. So if you could Tell do something about that. About that. <laughs> I, I grew up in Bolton. Justin's one of the – Yeah. You're the only two people that I've met that have actually come from Bolton. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're the, probably the only two that survived. Yeah, well, everybody else moved away. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I guess I, I would like to ask you about Bolton and all that stuff, too. Um, you mentioned Colchester. Now we're up here in Johnson. Bolton was always your hometown. I think I also saw Essex for a while, maybe towards the end of your driving days. But yeah. where are you from? Where did you grow up? Colchester. Colchester. Yeah, Mounts Bay Avenue. I, I would say that's where we spent. The bulk of my childhood was, was there. My parents moved from there to Cambridge, which was a short stint. And then from there to Bolton. And Bolton actually would have been my second so-called location, which was good because that place actually had a garage. There you go. Uh, it had cement floors, metal walls. I mean, no, it was but great. where in Bolton? Because you live in the trailer park or on the no. mountain? There's nowhere else. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I typical, was in the Typical park. Bolton resident, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So narrow-minded. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I worked at the ski resort. <laughs> yeah. No, it was actually right on the main drag, not that far from the Latham Trailer Sales. Okay. There's a few houses yep. through there. My parents had one of them. Yep. It's the one with the – there's a shop behind it. The railroad tracks actually run – I don't even know if there's a train on there anymore. I don't even know as I ever remember seeing a train, to be it's honest. It's 15 years since I spent But it was time behind there. the house, closer to the railroad tracks. Yep. That's where the, the shop was. Yeah. We got our home from Latham. So. <laughs> okay. I, I get it, yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess you're in Bolton at this point with this hurricane car. I would have to say yes, but there was a time when the car was stationed on River Road. 
in Essex. And, and that's when I became involved with uh, Rick Gagnon, mm. who I still think to this day is, is, is a genius. Phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, and Bill Gagorek, who worked at GE. I kind of formed this alliance, and I, I'm pretty confident that's where the car was. I could have, I could be wrong. I, I'm, I really don't seem to recall that as good as I probably should. Who are the guys that you were racing with in that division that you were like, man, I gotta, I gotta learn from that guy, or I gotta chase that guy, or beat him, or whatever? I would think. Maybe you know, there again, it was such a short amount of time. I, I, I remember a guy named Buzzy Lambert. I think Larry Karen might have been in that division at the time. Ron Yance, I remember him. Short of that, I, oh, I really Jim don't. Barton. Yeah, Jim Barton. Probably Richard Bootsy. Bootsy, like yeah. yeah. Yeah, your memory's better than mine. I do a lot of research. Mike. Okay. <laughs> a lot of research. That's before, that's before our time, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I would like to believe it was before mine, but the, <laughs> the evidence is overwhelming. <laughs> All right. Well, you progress. I've got the picture here. I did a lot of picture printing. I guess so. Uh, well, there was an orange car. Freaking Staples ran out of paper when I was there. Anyway, you had an orange late model and then this car. Um, yeah. 77, 78. This was probably a breakthrough car for a lot of reasons. The first late model we purchased, the three of us purchased, Billy, Rick, and myself, was from a guy in Williston named Bob Pratt. It was, a, I believe it was blue with the number four. Mm-hmm. Great-looking car, but, but not really a race car, more of a show car. We got it, and we, we started cutting it up bad. And we were doing stuff to this car that, quite frankly, we, we were way in over our heads. So we got lucky. The car ran relatively well. Um, and then we, we got this car. And this car was an absolute rocket ship. Red, red, white, and blue number eight. Yeah. Gold, gold number eight on the door. This car came about because of a friendship with, a, with another guy you probably, I don't know if you've ever spoken to, Bob Curtis. Bob Curtis um, was what I would consider the first full-time racer that I really knew and hung out with. And this was one of his old cars. And it was more car than we probably realized we had at the time. And I say that because it was really light. This was a Dennis Fringe car, I believe. Mm. Parts of it. Now, the whole car wasn't built by Dennis, but I I believe the frame and and roll cage and stuff. And this was the car I was telling you about that we were at Martinsville with. And I remember the cars going by, and I'm looking at the door bars because I I knew how thin the door bars were in this car because, obviously, we had put pop rivets in it, and we we had worked on the car. The weak link to this car was the motors, and, and I say that because we built them. Mm. These motors were built in the garage in Bolton. Um, they were stock Chevrolet motors with pink rods, you know, cast iron cranks. Um, the only reason they had the, the horsepower they did was because the components in the engine were so light that they could spin up fast. The downside is they didn't last. Mm. We, we took this car to Martinsville. We qualified. We were actually running really, really good. And I remember going down to Backstradio on the very last lap, the motor just detonated. And, and we actually made it across the line. And I, I don't remember where we finished, but it was way better than we ever thought we would finish. Strictly because the car was so quick in the corners. And it was, 
I don't want to say it was lighter than every car because it wasn't. I mean, every car has to maintain a certain weight. But this was my first taste of uh, left side weight and light, light components in the suspension, mostly in the front end. Obviously, the rear end was a quick change, and there really wasn't a whole lot you could do to those. But, but because the overall car was so light that we were able to move lead around the car where we thought it, it needed to be with our limited, limited knowledge. But we knew you didn't have to be a rocket scientist to know that you wanted the weight, you know, low, left, and, and after that, you, know, you just do whatever you needed to do to balance the car out. The only time we got really hurt with this car was a, um, a, a damn tire pressure gauge. We, we must have run uh, God, way too many races. I don't know. It might have been one, but it was, I know it was a lot more than that, with a faulty air pressure gauge. And I remember the car was always rolling over in the corners, and I, we just couldn't figure it out. And we stumbled onto the fact that it, I, I believe one of the guys noticed that the car going through the corner said, Mike, the tire in the right front looks soft, which I said, well, that makes sense because that's kind of what I've been feeling. But every time we checked the air pressure, it would be right. And then we stumbled on the fact that it was a faulty air pressure gauge. And then after that, the car just that came alive. <laughs> yeah, it really does, a little $25 gauge. But this car at Oxford was... Well, this this was actually the car that propelled us into the eight car, because at the Oxford two hundred and fifty, and I don't remember what year it was, we went up, and there was somewhat of a tire. I don't know if it was a tire war, but there was there were some tire issues. Goodyear had brought a tire that was incredibly soft, incredibly fast, and a lot of the guys bought the tire for qualifying. We bought the tire also. But a lot of them were afraid to run it for the entire 250 laps. This is where being poor had an advantage. We didn't have the money to buy another set of tires. So we had to default to the tires we had qualified on, which were the Goodyear's, which helped me in multiple ways, and I'll try to explain them all. But anyways, when the race started, we were incredibly fast. We were driving by guys on the outside, and I mean some big names, Butch Lindley and those guys. I mean, literally driving on by them on the outside. And, and it, don't get me wrong, it wasn't from talent. It was from a, a really fast race car and really soft tires. Well, that particular race, Angelo, Jimmy, and Ramo Pizzagalli just happened to be in the stands. And sometime in the race, I, I believe we were running second at the time, and we had this fan blade on the car, this aftermarket thing that was partly aluminum, partly steel. Well, it broke. And, of course, when it broke, it threw it out of balance. And when it threw it out of balance, it vibrated the water pump and eventually destroyed it. Sure. So it, that fan took us out of the 250 where uh, I'm, I don't know, I'm sure we went to one because I believe Robert Presley won and he just literally dominated. But he was one of only two or three guys like us that were on the Goodyear's. Because a lot of people didn't realize, and this was another lesson I learned that night, was Oxford is two different racetracks. You have a day race yes. track and a night race track. Yep. And that actually was one of the things that helped us, helped us to win the Oxford 250 a few years later. So, but when I went back to work a day or so later, uh, I think it was either Angelo or, or Ramo approached me and they asked me, you know, what had happened. I told them and they said, well, if you would have had the money, would you have replaced that particular part on a regular basis? 
I would have loved to have said yes, but quite frankly, I, I had to say I, I really didn't know because it wasn't something we expected to break. Yeah, you don't. Right. In hindsight, you know, obviously now we, we don't even run fans. Mm -hmm. After that, we didn't even run a fan. Little did I know that that had ignited a spark in them. And the following year, I believe it was, is when they approached me about the A car. Um, they said, listen, we have this plan, idea, whatever you want to call it, and we want to own a team, and we want it based out of Shalot, and we're willing to you know, buy the Emmanuel Shalaka's car with the H&E motor and want to know if you were interested in driving, and, which is a, a, kind of a pretty stupid question to ask anybody. <laughs> and so the timing worked out good because that was the year I was enrolled um, for an engineering. Um, so I said, I, I, I don't even know if I had an option at that point. You know, I, I don't think I could have maintained our own car. And it was, and, and we certainly did not have a lot of money. Um, so that's how the, the A car progressed. I have a question about this era of the 250 and tires. Yeah. I know there was a point where you couldn't change tires, and there was also a point where if you did change tires, you had to use a four-way wrench. There were no air tools or electric or anything like that allowed. Do you remember if that was during this era? No, I, I honestly saying, well, don't remember. Would it have given you an advantage to just run one set of tires? for the Well, to be honest with you, even if it had been a rule at that point, it wasn't even on our radar right. because we only had one set of tires. Yeah. And, and I'm pretty confident it wasn't because I, I do kind of remember from talking to the guys after that Presley pitted. Now, he might have just pitted for fuel. I, I, I'm going to have to plead ignorance because I, I honestly don't know. And, and that might have been the reason the guys elected to go with the harder tires because you couldn't change tires. So you, you may be absolutely right, but it was one of those deals where it made, yeah. it made no difference to us. Although I guess it did, I and mean, we just weren't even smart enough to realize it. <laughs> so you go from driving your own stuff, now you're driving for someone else. Are you still putting a ton of input into the car and working on the car, or are you now leaving that up to someone else and, you know, like you said, focusing on getting your degree? Both. The... And this was the genius of the eight team at that time. And, and I didn't really, I don't think I understood how good the team was. Not only did we have, you know, good equipment. It wasn't better than anybody else's. Don't, don't get me wrong. There was no trick stuff involved in the eight car. It was, it was right out of Shavakas. There was nothing trick about it. Same with the motors. They were H&E motors. There were plenty of them around. But the people that were in charge of the team were incredibly smart. And by smart, I mean wisdom. They, they understood. There was, there was not an ego on the team. Um, they originally started the team, of course, we had two cars. We had my car, and then we had Peter's car, which was the A and the 88. Peter Pizzagalli. Right. Um, and Kenny Buckland was hired to be the crew chief full-time. They were so organized, it was not only refreshing, but it allowed me the ability to go to school. I mean, I can remember we, we had uniforms, which was somewhat unique at that time. 
you know, the, the truck and trailer were always washed and, and clean and ready to go. And, and of course I wasn't worried about having to pay the bills, which was a tremendous relief. Um, but they, they kept everybody in, and it's hard to explain, but we were given leeway, but not enough to hang ourselves. Mm. Um, I, I know at the at the night before the race, say we were going to Quebec City or whatever, Ramo would meet us down there. We would get these envelopes with its, our um, expense money in them. So we were given the ability to do what we wanted as far as where we wanted to eat, where we wanted to stay, and everything else. But we had limits. But we were also given choices. And that's kind of the way it was with the race car. At that, that time... That's good parenting. They were really? phenomenally good, yeah. and, and I'm sure it's because of the business experience and, and all their wisdom from years of working in, in that area. The cars, of course, you got to remember Kenny Bucklin was now crew chief for two cars, Peter's car and, and mine. And and sometimes I, I feel a little bad for Peter because that wasn't the original plan. If you remember, and correct me if my memory is wrong, but that division he was going to start at was – disbanded that year. Oh, yeah. So the only thing I think was available was either mini stock or the late model. Yep. So he kind of got thrusted up into it probably a little too soon, but you know, he, he, he handles this kind of stuff really well. He, he's, he's a strong guy. The, the downside to that was, of course the crew chief was split between two cars, but obviously the A car was the primary car for his success Peters was more of a development type car, which and again didn't help him because I remember they threw in a an automatic transmission as an experimental, mm. um, and, and it was for two reasons. One, yeah, it was experimental prototype, whatever you want to call it, but it also it was there was some justification to make it a little easier for Peter than to have to jump into a four speed. Was it a mistake? How, yeah. how old is he? Oh, you know, that's a really good question. And, and I should know. I mean, he, he's literally the greatest guy on the planet. Um, I, I honestly don't know. I, I mean, ballpark, was he a lot younger or older? Or oh, I, I really don't know anything about Peter Pitzkell. 18. Oh, well, he had to be oh. at least 18, but probably closer to 20. You know, you know, that's a really good question. I don't know. But he, he was a kid. Though. Yeah, he was young. He, yeah. he was really, really young. But he, But he handled it well. So, but it was one of one of the funnier stories about that car. There's actually two, the 88 car. It was a car that had one at Martinsville. It was a Emanuel Shalakis in-house car that Sonny Hutchins had, had driven at Martinsville and won. But when the car was in the shop, and, and there's another twist, Rick Gagnon was involved heavily with the 8 car, which was the saving grace. We would always, Rick and I would always say to Kenny, Kenny, are you going to lower that car? Because even sitting in the shop, you could tell the car, the ride height of the car was was too high. Yep, yep, never did. Well, sometime later, I don't know if you got it, Daryl Waltrip came up and drove Peter's car at, at Catamount for a 100-lapper. Daryl walks into the garage, Daryl Waltrip, into the shop, and the first thing out of his mouth was, Kenny, you're going to lower that car, right? Well, we could have rolled on the floor laughing because Kenny's like, yeah, yeah, and he actually did it at that point. Um, so so yes, that sir, was... Yes, Mr. Walter. Yes, yeah, <laughs> which 
kind of made me think that Daryl had more clout than me. Go figure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and we won that night, so that was a little disheartening. But no. <laughs> but Daryl actually came in the pits, I guess, during the race, because I guess the, the training was smoking something terrible inside the car, and asked if he, he, he mind if he parked it because he just couldn't take the smoke anymore. But but I guess he was it was doing quite well with it um, at the time. So yeah, it was. But you know, we that was a brand new team from the from the ground up. New car, new shop, new people, and we had a crew chief change about midstream with that car. And there again, the saving grace was Rick Gagnon. Um He he, I don't want to say he stepped up the plate because he already was there at, at that point of the crew change. Um, Rick was, and Rick and I always had an extremely good channel of communication. At least I felt. Um, I, my input was, it seemed to me was always, you know, part of the setup. Um, And there again, Rick and I, as far as I know, there, there, I certainly had no ego and I don't think he did. Um, So that, that really helped. We, we had a focus, we wanted to win and that was so Kenny Buckham left the team. Well, you might have to rephrase left. Well, okay. Kenny uh, was a great guy. Don't get me wrong. I, I really like Kenny. And like I say, when it came to washing the haulers and doing types of stuff, he was phenomenal. Um, brought a lot of experience, brought some knowledge and wisdom, but he was split between two teams and, and – having a tough time with this because I, I remember Dave Dion saying, if you can't say nothing nice, you shouldn't say anything. That's the second time we've heard that <laughs> quote today. Heard that today. <laughs> so I'm having a little tough time right now, but the, the problems mounted and they started, we had a really great car. We had good equipment, but the night before a race at Sonera, I think it was a 200 lap race, we had the most god-awful piece of crap transmission bolted in the car that you would ever see. So I got a call that evening from one of the principals of the owners, and they asked me you know, what I thought was going to happen tomorrow. And I said, we're going to be fast. There's a good chance we're going to win, but the transmission's going to break. And they're like, what? And I, and I told them, I said, you know, I saw this transmission. It was in a box the night before the race, and it was a reject, I believe, from Barkham. I said, it's, it's, it's just not going to hold up. Well, sure enough, we, we were quick. We were always quick at the little track of Sinair. The transmission first started popping out of gear, and I said, well, isn't this sweet? So I reached down, and I'm trying to hold this thing in gear on that small track. Remember, these are cars without power steering. And the track is as flat as this it's table. As flat as this table. And you slid out to the, the, the wall yeah, on both ends. It's always 500 ends. degrees up there. 500 degrees. Yeah. Well, eventually it just broke. And so I was a little upset. I mean, it's, it's hard when you call something to see it happen and know that it did happen. That's one time I would have been more than happy to say I was wrong. So that was strike one. Strike two, we were leading the, the point championship at Oxford. And I was going to school, so I was actually in Richmond 
talk to Kenny. Of course, this is for cell phones. And Kenny says, we'll pick you up on the way to Oxford. I said, great. You know, I'm, I'm waiting. I'm waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting, waiting. No show. So finally, I get on the phone. I call one of the owners again. And I'm like, here's the situation. I'm sitting here in Richmond. I don't know where the race car is. It's getting late. And what do you want me to do? So they said, get in your car, drive to Oxford. If you get there and the car's not there, try to rent a car. I said, fine. So I get in my car. I'm driving toward Oxford at a, probably a little higher rate of speed than allowed by law. Pull off the interstate. I pull into Montpelier. And lo and behold, the hauler's sitting at a convenience store. I remember pulling in behind the hauler, not, not even knowing how to feel. I get out, I meet Rick, he just puts his head down, shakes his head, and gets in the hauler, which told me really all I need to know. So I walk in the store, Kenny's in there buying something. And I'm like, hello? Well, we had to pick Tom Goslin up the radio station, and he said, we figured you'd figure it out and meet us at the track. I said, okay. So that was kind of strike two, and, and not just for me, because... There again, earlier I had mentioned how the team communicated really well together. So everybody knew what everybody was doing, what was going on. So this hadn't gone unnoticed, right. sort of stay upstairs. But we shook it off. We were winning. Life is great, right, when you're winning. Well, the third and final blow was at Laval. We go to Laval for the, I think it was it was called like the Mons, the 180 or something yep. like that. It was yep. three 60-lap races. And kind of like the Milk Bowl of Canada. And Laval was another really good track of ours. I don't think I ever finished worse than second, and that was to Robbie in 81. We get to the track, and I go, Rick, why don't we have any tires? He just shakes his head, and that's like, oh, my God. So I go to Kenny, and I'm like, where is Kenny? Oh, he's over on Claude Elblin's car. Seriously? And so I finally run him down. I say, Kenny, we don't have any tires. Oh, I think somebody was, he told me somebody was bringing them. It might have even been Steve Poulin, to be quite honest with you. It was somebody was supposed to be bringing them. So, of course, I immediately run over there. I mean, practice is on. I mean, we're sitting here with a car on jack stands, no tires. I go over and they look at me like I've got three heads. Like, what are you talking about? So I'm like, seriously? So I go back. And now I'm probably. Perturbed. On, uh, yeah. Warm. Yeah, warm, slightly warm. So I just go in the hauler, and I just, the hauler had its couch, tables, and everything. I'm sitting back in there, and one of the owners comes in, and, and I was really, because I was angry. And I said, you know, it's my ass out there. I said, I'm going to look like a fool out there on used tires. And I said, I, I just, you know what, it just doesn't seem right. You know, and I know you guys are, have been spending money, you guys are involved 100%, and they're like, you're right. Just get through today. Well, I must be doing something right because right next side of us, and, it, and this is how, uh, this web, Phil Garbodi was parked next to us and had blown a motor, I believe, or had some sort of major mechanical malfunction during practice. So he gave us his tires. So we bolted Phil's tires on, went out, and, and maybe... And, and there again, i got to go back to that pro and con. Maybe at that point I was so angry. I don't know what it was. But we won the first segment. We started dead last, I believe, in the second segment. Finished second or third. 
made one move that I still should thank Steve Poolman for because I remember turning literally left, going down the back straightaway, not even giving a hoot. But to be honest with you, I saw who it was, and he liked his cars nice. And at that point, I didn't even <laughs> I didn't care if I was on my roof. Yeah. So I just cranked it left and took off. And then we won the third segment. So we, and of course, we ended up winning overall. So I don't know. Maybe that was some grand plan of Kenny's right from the beginning, but I, I don't believe so. So I do know that that next morning, um, they cut him loose. And, um, and, and there was other good reasons, because I know Rick was getting quite frustrated because here Kenny was, you know, had the title, had the paycheck, and Rick was doing pretty much everything. Yeah. And I don't, I don't mean to... I mean, Kenny's a great guy. Don't get me wrong. No. I mean, I, he's a really... Oh, there, there was another time at Catamount. The whole crew's there. Where we had just left Kenny. I mean, literally half an hour early, we had left him. And now we're all at the pits waiting for him. Practice is going on. It's almost over. We're like, what could have happened? And just before qualifying starts, we look, and, and the haulers coming up the Catamount entrance like, Dust is flying. We're thinking, oh, my God, you know, something must have happened. Comes flying in, jumps out of the hauler to, to sign in. Of course, Brian jumps in the hauler to get in. on. I go, Kenny, what happened? What happened? Oh, I was watching the motorcycle races on TV. <laughs> no. We won that night, too. <laughs> so, so maybe there was a... There maybe was you a, should have kept him on. You would have yeah, won. Just a master right. motivator. <laughs> a master motivator. <laughs> Yeah, but let me remind Holy you, in 1980, we, we might have won a lot of races, but we wrecked a lot of race cars. Um, I remember <laughs> being in Richmond, Virginia, at, the, at Emmanuel Shavakos' shop, putting on a new front clip. And Emmanuel himself comes out, and he walks up to me, and he goes, something to the effect, I am sick of you wrecking my race cars. And my first thought was, dude, we're, we're here spending money. You know, I mean, I would think you'd be thrilled to death. And I said, Emmanuel, I, I don't know what to tell you. I said, but does the fact that we start basically last every race mean anything to you? Mm. Oh, he turns and walks off. And I'm thinking, well, I don't really know if I won that argument or not. Well, about half an hour, 40 minutes later, whatever, he comes back out. And I'm thinking, oh, no. He goes, do you want to see Jeff Bodine's race car? And I'm like, Hello? Well, at the time, Jeff Bodine was driving Emmanuel's in-house car, yeah. but it was in a shop adjacent that you couldn't really have access to. Well, that was a silly question, too. And I'm like, yeah. Well, he brings me in there, just him and I, into the shop, and Jeff's car's up on stands, pristine. Of course, he's starting on the front row. Every week. He goes, you see those, those hubs there? I go, yeah. He goes, those are aluminum. I'm like, really? He goes, yeah. Thinking, oh, that's interesting. Ours are steel and these are aluminum. And my first thought was, I wonder if they're holding up. But in the worst case, they at least hold up on the left side. I'm trying to, in my mind, decipher how we're going to use these damn things, which we never got used of. And then I, and he let me have free reign. I'm crawling over this car like, you know, a squirrel on a nut. And I noticed a short pan hard bar in the rear end. And I'd always had this question in my mind about short pan hard bars, using them. The, the tight radius to get the rear ends to move in the car at precise times that you might, in fact, need more bite. I said, hmm, well, 
We go out of the shop. I don't know, a couple, three hours later, Jeff Bonine walks in. And I don't know if I wasn't thinking or if I was just being an instigator. But I, I Jeff comes up, oh, how are you doing, blah, blah, blah. I said, Jeff, how does that short pan eye bar work? He looks at me like, you know, what in God's name are you talking about? And I said, on your race car, the short hand pan eye bar. He goes, how, how did you get in there? I said, well, Emmanuel took me and showed me. He took off like a oh, rocket ship. Boy. I never saw either one of them again the whole time we were down there working on the car. So I really don't know what happened after that. I never got the, I don't know if pleasure would be the correct word, to see either one of them during that that trip down there. But I I had spoken to Jeff after that. I know when we won the 250, we were at a scenario, I believe, and he came up and said, you know, congratulations and stuff. And so... Maybe he completely forgot, uh, you know, that whole scenario or whatever. But I, I thought that was kind of interesting at the time. Mm, and he wasn't known for being polite. Forthcoming. <laughs> Who? Jeff? Jeff. <laughs> well, I tell you, either is Emmanuel. Yeah. I watched him. I, I watched the guy work on the hood of a car for a better part of a half a day, just massaging it. And Emmanuel came out, he looked at it, and he took a hammer and started banging on it. Oh, my God. And I'm like, whoa, these, these dudes are... They're hardcore down here. <laughs> oh my god! Well, who who replaced Kenny Buckland? Rick. Rick. Okay. So okay. Despite crashing a bunch of race cars, and despite you know obviously internal struggle, ten wins in a season is pretty damn amazing. Yeah, we. You know, and, and you kind of said earlier you had to stop and smell the roses. But you didn't realize that until I, did you at all realize that? Like we are on a streak that's that's very rare, very rare. Yes and no. Um, there again, being extremely busy, you know, it was somewhat stressful. Um, I, I even though I was able to, to get out of college with honors, I, I don't really know how. I would like to think maybe they cut me some slack, but I don't believe it. Mm. And I'm not the world's greatest student, so that was even more of a mystery. I, I, I don't really know. I, I've never really been had my ear to the ground to that type of stuff. Um, and I think I was so focused because up until that point, including that year, the so-called career was pretty much a steady incline uh, of uh, as far as the number of wins. Progress. Yeah. Right. We did have a meeting and the end of 80 where we were trying to re- reduce the, the DNFs and most of the DNFs were obviously the fault of the driver hitting things. Um, so we, we tried to get it to a point where we would reduce that, which we did. But 1981 was a, a really big turning point for me. Um, I could read the tea leaves at the end of 1980, on the way the cars... This is 81 here. Yeah. No, this is 80. Oh, that's 80. 81 had the white top. Okay, all right. And I only know that because I just <laughs> looked through the scrapbook. <laughs> um, I could read the tea leaves early in the end, toward the end of 80, knowing where the cars were, were mutating towards. So we had our meeting at the end of the year, and we sat down and said, well, you know, what are we going to do next year? And I said, well... We're going to need a new car. I said, I think Peter 
you know, if, if you watch can drive the eight car, I think, you know, it's still probably a tad above his abilities right now. It's a great car, easy to drive, had truck arms, front, forwards, uh, front end, rear steer. I said, it's a, it's a really good car. But if we're going to continue to win, we're going to have to evolve with, with what I see coming down the pipe. So they all agreed. We jumped on a plane. We flew to um, Wisconsin. And we sat down. We met with Dennis Fringe. And I said, Dennis, we need a car. And he goes, okay. And he said, the only problem is the car I'm going to build you is rack and pinion steering. And I said, well, that's a problem, Dennis. I said, because as of right now, rack and pinion is, is illegal. This is not part of the rules. He goes, well, I don't know what to tell you. So I said, well, that's an obstacle. But his, it, it, I got back to Vermont. I went down to Waterbury. I sat with Tom, and I said, Tom, um, is rack and pinion steering going to be allowed in 1981? Because I wanted face-to-face to him to tell me yes or no. Because I figured that would be the way it would be. He goes, no, rack and pinion will not be allowed in 1981. I said, well, that kind of blows us out of the water. And it was later in the year, there was no plan B. I said, well, we're going to have to take the eight car and do whatever it is we can do to it. But I said, we, we won't be in the deficit. I think we would, because if rack and pinion ain't allowed, a lot of these really lightweight, left side, heavy cars, we won't have to race against wrong in 1981 when we rolled into the spring green rack and pinion cars were there so i was a little how did you find that out well i just had to look at them yeah and and i knew they were going to be there before i mean it's a small community we know who's building cars we know who's going to be driving what so it wasn't a secret but i what i was i didn't expect them to literally be there the first race of the year so they were so we had done everything we could do to the eight car. And, and, and don't get me wrong, the eight car was a great car, but it was not trick in no fashion. So I'm like, ouch, this is going to be a long year, 1981. And sure enough, the spring green started. We won the damn thing. And I was like, oh, well, maybe I'm scared of the boogeyman for no reason. Well, on the ride, well, we didn't get to the ride home because we got disqualified before we got that far. So that was a little... What? The carburetor. The motors and carburetors were all built by H&E. There was, to my knowledge, there were 13 of them that day at, at Catamount. And I can explain to you what they do. And, and what it really irritated me was I was down at the shop one day cleaning the shop because that was really all I was qualified to do. And I picked up this box and there was these little metal disc in it and i remember shaking the box looking at me like what, what the heck was this because you know part of cleaning is throwing stuff away and keeping stuff and it never dawned on me that they were butterflies for the carburetor because i said why would we ever want those yeah. they don't wear out so i just you know went about my business i had no clue what was going on but the most disheartening thing about the whole thing was the only team rule that we had from above was do not cheat that was it. That's the only restriction we were ever given during the entire eight lifestyle. And 
we got disqualified. And I was on top of being told that we couldn't have the power steering. I, it was really a turning point for me because I was like, at that point, I'd never really experienced the, the whole politics of, of racing and, and, you know, the favoritism type stuff. And, and I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus. I, I, Tom and I had the, the most crazy love hate relationship you could imagine. I mean, to my knowledge, that spring green was the second one we'd won in a row. We were disqualified. Tom Curley dragged me through the sand up at Oxford one day. During the Oxford races with the eight car, we were racing open comp cars. So at a meeting, I think it was even at the Holiday Inn, that's how well I remember it, the main purpose that Rick and I and everybody went to the meeting was to ask Tom if we could make some adjustments to the cars while we were at Oxford, but still qualify for NASCAR's rules. And he said, yeah. So we were at the Oxford in the pits. We had done a few things to the car, nothing dramatic. And and I saw Rick and Tom kind of in their usual standoff, and and that's never good. (laughs) And then I saw Tom look and look right at me, which is never good, and start proceeding toward me at a rapid pace. Which is even worse. Which is far worse. (laughs) And he started yelling at me about Rick. And I said, Tom, Rick's right. We asked you. Well, I could see the expression in his face. And I'm like, if I can talk to him, I know he'll, I'll get through to it. So he turned. I grabbed him by the arm. And he's literally dragging me through the sand. I'm like, Tom, you remember the meeting? Remember the meeting? And I could tell it was sinking in because I was having to offer less resistance. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and he said, without even saying anything, okay, and walked off. And I said, oh, okay, great. You know, we, we've lived through that storm. But probably the worst one was at Stafford. Um, this was some years later. And, and, and don't get me wrong. Tom and I, he'd call me up on a moment's notice, and I'd jump in the car, and we'd go to Molson in Montreal to hang around with the sponsors and stuff. And I know when I got hurt at Claremont, I was in the emergency room. I woke up, there he was. So, I mean, Tom has a really good guy with a tough job. I wouldn't have wanted him. Mm. But at Stafford, I was driving the 24 car. Rick calls me up. He goes, Mike, you want to go to Stafford? And I'm like, no. It was a, it was a two-day show. Qualify on Saturday, race on Sunday. And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, no, I don't want to go way down there and spend two days just to race. And don't get me wrong, we, I think we had gone to Stafford twice previous, won, won one and finished second in the other. So it wasn't like I didn't like Stafford. I, I actually did. I said, but if Tom wants, I'll we'll go down Sunday morning and race. And, you know, I said, I know there's risk to that because they qualify on Saturday, and the only way you can qualify on Sunday is in a concert. So I said, but I don't care. I, I just don't want to waste two days down there. So Rick calls me back. He goes, yep, Tom said, show up. So we get to Stafford, and I could tell he wasn't really happy with me. And at the pit meeting, he said qualified cars at the end of practice stay in the infield. Non-qualified cars come back to the pit area, which made sense because we had to get ready for the concert. So I did. After practice, I came. And then I look again, and I look down the pit lane, and I see Rick and Tom again. And I'm like, oh, God. And now it's bad because I could hear it, and I was quite a ways away. And all Rick had to say was, no, you're wrong. Well, he turned, saw me, and he come. And I, this time I tried to run away. 
being the coward I am. Well, he caught me between the haulers. And I was running away because I didn't think he really wanted to hear what I wanted, had to say. But unfortunately, he got to hear it. And he didn't like it. And he told me to load up and get the hell out of there. What? What was the... Well, he just said stuff like, who in effing do you think you are? You just show up whenever you want, you know, blah, blah, blah. The world doesn't kind of revolve around you. And I'm like, never said it did, but neither does racing. I said, you know, it's a lot more important to you, Tom, than it is to me. Because you remember, I didn't even want to be here. Right. Well, that was all I had to say. And he went absolutely ballistic. Well, Lenny Stockwell and a few of the other officials come over and they said, don't load your car. Which, in hindsight, we should have, because in the Quancy, somebody crashed right in front of us, and I tried to run around him on the outside and, you know, wreck the car. So we ended up having to leave anyway. So I guess karma, and Tom was right. You know, Tom, in that respect, it was right, but so wasn't I. Um, it was more important to him than it was to me. At that point, I, I, was, I was plain ass sick of it. I was sick of the, the, you know, the, like I said, 1981, the, those two incidents impacted me a lot. And being, and I probably was looking for an, a way out because I had other interests that I was interested in. I didn't care about winning. And, and that got, oh my God, on steroids worse after the 250. After we won the 250, you could have come to me and said, if you go to Quebec City, I guarantee you'll win. And I would still go, no, no, I, I just don't care. It just doesn't mean anything anymore. You know, it, hmm. with everything else involved, you know, I, I had tasted the winning, you know, like you said, the, in 1980. 81 was kind of a, I mean, we finished second seven times in 1981. Seven. And what and John Force say, that's the first loser. And trust me, it is the first loser. It's the worst feeling in the world. So, and I didn't like it. So you could say, well, that's a poor little brat. Um, but no. And, and so at the end of 81, we all kind of agreed that, you know, it, it, it just wasn't, it was too much work and effort. But you got to remember at that point, I was even more burnt out. Because the last year of, of the School of Engineering was really difficult. Because I was the type that when I was there, I had to focus 100%, which was good for discipline. After class, I had to do all the exercises, homeworks right then right and away. there where they didn't get done. I mean, I had great intentions. I'd, I'd bring a bag full of books in the hauler. Other than ballast, they were useless. So that, in the, in the last year, of course, it, it was just harder and harder. And I remember the very first day of school that last year, I wasn't there because we had raced, I think it was in Thompson, and I literally could not, it was a late race, I just couldn't make it that day. I was. I remember being in the motel, waking up, thinking, oh my God, I, I just can't go. So I was getting really burnt out, really burnt out. And I never, I remember guys would say, oh, once you start racing, you get the bug, you, you can't quit. Well, that, that didn't. For some reason, that didn't happen to me. And I don't know if that's good or bad, but it, it just didn't happen. That's a lot to take in. So arguably, obviously, your biggest win of your entire career, you were like, uh, okay, 
and you were ready to be de- or were you able to enjoy yeah, or winning that, the 250 right yeah 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 the 250 is when the the like the final nail on the coffin up until that point that was all i focused on it, it was it was an almost a story for the movies when phil garotti called me i believe it was 83 82 i can't 82 and or maybe it was rick i don't remember but asked if i wanted to drive the car i said yes with the understanding that we would only go to the races that I wanted to go to. And and I'm sure that wasn't something Tom wanted to hear either. Yeah, right. Because my focus was the 250. You know, we had we had won the track championship at Oxford. We had won races there. They had great trophies. And <laughs> but the 250 was the one I wanted to win. Well, a couple of weeks before the the 250 Rick and I did nothing but work on this car. I mean, it was we we dedicated those those times to get this car ready for that race, and then Phil walked into the shop and said, "Hey, anything you guys make over ten thousand, you could keep." And I was like, "Bingo!" That was the last motivated tool we needed in the box. Mm-hmm. So, but and here's the genius of Rick Gagnon. We mm-hmm. went to the two fifty with a plan. The plan was to squeak by qualifying. We had to get the car in the show because we were setting the car up to not be very fast during the day. And that, as a driver, is as scary as it comes. Because when you show up at the 250, and I think there was, what, 100 cars, 109 cars. Gambling on the long. Oh, and there was everybody that was anybody. and, And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I've got to set this car up to be slow and qualifying. And I'm like scared to death we're not going to make the race. Because if you think you can't win by not finishing, you sure as heck can't win by not qualifying. So I'm like, whoa. Fair point. <laughs> so so we, we practiced with the car, and it had a terrible push in it. I mean a, a, a monster push. And, and, I'm, and that's so far out of my driving style, it isn't even funny. And I'm like, park the car. I knew that's, that was our plan park the car, and just sit on it. Well, as it got closer and closer and closer to the race, you had one driver that was really getting nervous. And Rick was like, no, we're sticking to the plan. And I'm like, Rick, Rick. I mean, I tried probably every mind trick in the game to get him to change his mind, even though I knew he was right. And we, we stuck to the plan. And we went out and qualified, and I don't know where we qualified, fourth, fifth, somewhere. And I got lucky in the heat. Um, but Oxford has always been good to me. Was it a draw? Yeah. Jesus. That's Yeah. Tell me about it. Yeah. Yeah. So So if you draw fourteenth for the heat and you're uh, on a slow car, that's it. Yeah. But of course you it's all relative too. Now, Oxford, like I said, has been very, very good to me. And for some reason I always click there. So even a slow car for me probably would have still been a relatively quick car to anybody else, because I, I could you know, work with what I had, but it wasn't what I wanted. So we qualified, we started the race, and everything was going to plan. We were pacing ourselves, logging laps. A yellow comes out, we dive in the pits to put on new tires. Drive back out of the pits, everything's fine. Going down the back straight the radio cracks, Mike, you got to come back in. I'm like, what? And they're like, you have to come back in. And I'm thinking, oh my God, 
I hope I'm not hearing this right. So I did what I was told. I come flying back down in the pits, and what had happened was that something had malfunctioned in one of the air guns. It either the nitrogen tank ran out, a hose got pinched. I don't know, but one of the tires wasn't tight. So I dove down in the pits. The green, I know the green flag is coming out this lap. So I come out of the pits, and the green flag had dropped. And I came out in like fourth position on the track, not in fourth place, fourth position on the track. And I'm like, damn. Up until this point, I had been saving the car as much as I could. Well, that, that basically was gone. Yeah. So luckily, by then it was later in the night, and the car literally came alive. Just like we had planned. Not, trust me, that don't always happen. That's why it was kind of written for the movies. <laughs> the car literally came alive. And we passed, I don't remember now, who the fourth place, the third place, the second place. And I ran up behind Ed Hal, going down the back straightaway. Wow. And I'm like, okay, but I still have one more domino. Well, I look, I always drove looking out the side window. I mean, the windshield, for the most part, could have been black, and I would have not cared. The, the gap between the window net and the window post was where I spent 90% of my time looking. So as I was going out the back straightaway following that hell, I looked off in the corner and I saw Dave Dion going sideways. And he kind of slid and he stopped right in the middle of the track in the fourth corner. And I said, oh, damn. And I said, well, wherever Ed Howell goes, I got to go the other way. Well, Ed Howell, thank God for me, decided to go around the outside. I said, beautiful. So I just dove to the inside, drove by Dion, who was... You know, it was a great driver, so he knew enough to stay s- still because if he hadn't, him and I would have been changing paint jobs. So I drove and beat him to the line. In Oxford, it was race to the start-finish yeah. line. Yep. So now I knew I had gotten my lap back. And, and I had an absolute rocket ship underneath me. I mean, this thing was flat-out fast. So I wasn't that concerned at that point. I... I lined up after the restart, tail end of the field. And Oxford is a, is, a, is a unique place. There's so much that goes on there during the yellows. It's, it's truly mind-boggling. And so I took advantage of all that and then some. And, and Oxford is also unique because where the position of the flagman is. On restarts, I never looked at the flagman. And I never waited for a radio call. Was the flagger down in the infield mm-hmm. at this point? So, yeah. yeah. Behind the dirt berm. Yeah, down the inside of the racetrack. Right. Pretty much eye level. Right. So what I used to do, especially if I was on the inside, but I could do it on the outside too, but I liked it better on the inside. I would count like three cars ahead of me, and I would just f- focus on the tailpipe of that car. And when I saw a puff of smoke come out of that pipe, I just matted it, regardless of what was going on in front of me. And it always seemed to work. Didn't make sense, but it worked, so I kept it up. So they started to race, and this thing was fast. And I just basically drove up through the field. And I got to the lead. I knew I was in the lead. I backed off. It was just logging laps. Coming out of the fourth corner, going down the front straightaway, I looked in my mirror, and who was there? I think it was Butch Lindley, if I remember it might have been Bodine, but it was one of the two. But I think it was Butch Lindley. And I remember thinking, okay, time to get back on the gas. And I was like, I hope you're still under me, car. <laughs> and it just, and one lap later, he was completely gone. And, and 
And when you get a car like that, it's it's a lot of fun. And it's real easy, I'll be honest with you. It kind of makes sense that what else is there after that? You're never going to have a car that's that good again. You're never going to win a bigger race. Yeah, you're not going to win a bigger, bigger race. Yeah, because at that point, the 250 was everything. Yeah, it still, it really still. still is. Yeah. I'm going to read the finish. Mike Berry, Butch Lindley, Dick McKay, Bobby Dragon, Jeff Bodine, Morgan Shepard, Dave Dion, Pete Silva, Dick Lyons, Beaver Dragon. That's a hell of a top ten. That's an all-star race. Yeah, those years, I thought, and, and this is obviously biased, I thought were the most competitive at Oxford. It was oh, yeah. it was something just to be in the pits. Um, and, and so... I, the picture that I printed off shows that there's no back window in the car. Yep. Because there was the open comp rules, the North mm-hmm. Tour rules, and then the Saturday night car rules. It was just, and we brought this up on the show a few times, that that era was so insane. Mm-hmm. Um, half a windshield. Half a windshield. like, And there was other stuff underneath. Of course. Nothing... There was a lot of airflow, and, and a lot of it was just in your own mind, you know, because let's face it, Oxford isn't the fastest track. You don't need the biggest motor. If anything, a lot of guys have been heard to disconnect the secondaries in the carburetor. So Oxford isn't necessarily a horsepower track. It, it is a handling track. It is kind of a driver's track. Um, and, and I don't say it's a driver's track because we won there and I was a driver. No, I'm not insinuating that I was something better than that, but um, it definitely allowed a lot of people to be more competitive than they probably wouldn't have been in, in on other tracks like Martinsville. Yeah. But, but it, you know, another quick story is, and, and I don't know if a lot of people know this was um, Dick Trickle. Um, Peter and I went to a driving school in Florida, Southern's driving school. And part of it was going to New Smyrna Speedway where they had cars set up with two seats in them. And one of the instructors was Dick Trickle. So when it was my turn, I jumped in the car with Dick. You know, I'm in the passenger seat. We're going to New Smyrna, and that's a pretty fast track. Go down the corner, blow, and he goes, now it's your turn. So I get in, and you know, and I did a, a little bit of on purpose. I, I probably drove in pretty hard because it was kind of interesting to see him over there kind of tightening up, going down the back straightaway. Was he smoking? No, no, no. If he was, I don't remember. But he could have been. Yeah. But I could see him over there, like, tightening up as we were driving down in the corner. And, and he stops me, and he goes, you've done this before. And I go, yeah. He goes, would you mind, you know, being an instructor? And I was like, on cloud nine. I'm like, here, Dick Trickle is, you know, not only passed me as a student, but thrown me from student to instructor, which was also extremely eye-opening. Because race cars are unique because there's only one seat. Yeah. And it's hard to really judge what other guys are doing because you don't, you don't, you're not there with them. Mm-hmm. So this young guy, really nice guy from Louisiana, I guess he was a big dirt track guy, jumps in the seat. And I'm a little apprehensive because, you know, who the hell am I? And we go down in the corner and he's cranking on the wheel and turned it about two times. And, of course, the front tires are trying to go 40-degree corner, and he's in a 30-degree. So they're sliding. Finally, the car slows down to where the tires, you know, regain traction, and then it snaps the back end around. Mm-hmm. And now he's working at the wheel the other way to try to get it. And, I, and I'll never forget, we're, 
I motioned for him to go in, and we're going down the long pitch lane in New Smyrna, and I'm trying, how am I going to word this? You know what I mean? How can I say to this guy, You're, you suck? <laughs> and, <laughs> and what's his reaction going to be? I mean, mine would have been, who the hell are you? You know? I want Dick Trickle. You're an idiot. And I wouldn't have blamed him. Yeah. But he was like, really? I'm like, yeah, you're turning the wheel way too much, dude. You, you, you're not going to have any arms left. And he goes, oh, okay. And, and he took it extremely well. Then we went out again. He, he obviously had, had progressed quite a bit. So I really... And that was Jeff Gordon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah that was Jeff. Yeah. yeah, that little guy there. That, yeah, that, that, right. <laughs> was that 24, I think his number was? Some DuPont car. Yeah. But No, I, I don't know who the guy was. But I was kind of impressed how well he... Because I really don't know how I would have took it. I think I would have taken it the same way because that's why you're there to learn. But So you've won the 250, and it's kind of a – the other side of it is a letdown, right, after. Yeah. Um, like you, you hit the goals, it, and it, now there is no goal left to shoot for. Yeah, and I, and I didn't really have – it didn't take much at that point because of 1980 and everything. I'm sorry, 1981, everything that happened there. So I really, it didn't take a lot for me to try to exit back out. And, and it seemed like a really good, I mean, hell, what's the best time to leave is when you're on top. Didn't necessarily work out that way, but. <laughs> but did you, I mean, the 250 especially then carries a lot of notoriety. And back in those days, you could earn a ride based on talent and based on a big win. And, I mean, did your phone ring at all? Did you have... I don't know if it did. I don't I don't recall it it, it, it ringing. Um, but I never was really that type of person. I mean, I, I was always satisfied where I was. I never spent extra time at the track or with other guys. Like I said, I spent time with Beaver and Bobby, and that was always in a hunting situation. Um, I, I just never was that, I don't want to say groupie, but I, I just, racing didn't, I guess, run through my blood. Um, mm-hmm. I, and I'm, and I, I, don't, I don't know if that's good or bad, but it's just, it was, I just had so many other interests mm-hmm. that were tugging at me all the time that I, I can remember literally being in the race hauler and we'd be driving to say Oxford and I'd be looking out at trout streams and the mountains going, wow, wouldn't it be nice to not be going today and, you know, just grab a fish pole and a pair of waders and go out and, and chase trout. And, and and maybe that was a defense mechanism. I, I don't know. Because like I said, I, I hated losing. Yeah, uh, and maybe I was like, well, you know, if I can just figure out a way out of here. But, but no, I, I tell everybody that will ever ask that racing – was the best education that you could possibly get. And it had so many tentacles of positively positivity that it, it's it's truly a blessing. Not only do you get to hang around and meet some of exceptional people. You know, I, I mentioned the Pizzicalis, you know, John LaBurge, Phil Gerbode, you know, Ken's Choir, Tom Curley, Bob Bear. Uh, you know, the list just goes on and on. And then drivers like, you know, Robbie and the Dragons and Dion. And I, I can remember we were, Bobby Dragon and I went to Montana, bow hunting. Um, we were back in the mountains. We had, there was no rental cars available. So we had rented this employee of the rental cars 
old truck. And I remember at the end of the day, we're tired. We come out of the woods. We're sitting in the truck, and we're driving this 20-something-mile dirt road down out of the mountains. And I'm sitting over in the passenger seat, and, you know, Bobby's cranking on that wheel and that truck down through. And I'm thinking, what a lucky son of a bitch, you know? Here I'm sitting in a truck with Bobby. We're, we're, he's driving. I'm sitting over in the passenger seat, you know, and he, and he knows more about racing than anybody I've ever met. And I just, it was those kind of things that I, today that I draw on the most. You know, um, a lot of times we'd come back to the motel and, and Beaver would be there. You know, and Beaver, bless his heart, he's a unbelievable storyteller. You know, and and we'll leave it at that. But he's a, he's a great guy. <laughs> he's a great guy. You know, and, and those kind of things, with those caliber of people, and, and racing certainly helped me with any self-esteem, confidence, which paid off later in life in, in business. Because you can tell yourself, oh, you're as good as everybody else. But when you have something to fall back on when the, the S hits the fan, so to speak, you can reflect at night and say, I'm as good as they are. And, you know, and I truly believe nobody's better than anybody else, and, and I've always believed that. But to be able to tell yourself, because I'm my worst of, own worst enemy. I mean, there is nobody in the world that can put more pressure on me than me. Nobody. And quite frankly, it's it's can be obsessive at times. Mm. And my wife tells me, dude, you got to stop thinking. I mean, I literally never shut this one brain cell off. I mean, it is cranked up on high. I say it's because I only have one, so I have to compensate. But really got to use it. You got to use the hell out of it when you only got one. <laughs> but no, I I I I try to plan way down the future. I, I carry so much lumber for bridges that I think are ahead of me that it's sometimes a, a burden where I truly, I used to envy Dave Dion. I mean, I'd see him, he's laughing, smiling. I'm like, dude, how can you be this happy all the time? But, you know, reading his book and, and listening to a few things, I mean, his brothers carried a lot of that weight for him and, and not, to, not to diminish his talent because he, he's a, enormously talented and that was a perfect combination for them i can't imagine if he'd have been like them and and if you need to know the intensity of of, of paul all you had to do is be at thunder road that day mm-hmm. <laughs> that's an intense dude <laughs> scared me <laughs> but yeah so it's you know and and hanging around with those type people you can't help but learn unless you're just a complete idiot. And, and let's face it, I, one of the few talents I had, and I know this is going to sound wild today because I've done most of the talking, but I truly believe in that two ears, one mouth. You know, you were given, because I, I, I always absorbed. I know Dave Dion came up to me at Thunder Road when I first started, and I'll never forget it. He goes, why are you turning right to turn left? And I looked at him, I'm like, I don't make a lot of sense, does it, to myself? But but in the same reflection, we were at the small track in Scenario, and he comes up and he goes, man, you get around this place good. So when, when you got a guy like that that will tell you the good and the bad, you know you've got a guy that's telling you the truth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that's those type of people are hard to come by. Um, they really are. So I, I really you know respected that. Same with Robbie. I mean, I can remember at Scenario struggling. He goes, you know, slow your entrance down and it made all the difference in the world 
I was at Quebec City one day making a fool of myself, which was another track we did extremely well. Valvolaire. Yeah, yeah. Valvolaire. And they're like, uh, you're a groove too high. Sure enough, dropped down a groove, picked up, you know, three, four tenths of a second. So I've always had the ability to listen. Um, and just a quick one with Rick to tell you the kind of genius he is. At Val Belair, the A card, John Paul Cabana, who's, who's another really good guy, amazing ability to know where his car is all the time. But anyways, I think it was his son. This young guy was always in their pit crew, and I'm pretty sure it was John Paul Cabana. But for some reason, he was always around our car. And it was almost a little unnerving at times because you turn around, there he is, you know, and he couldn't speak. English, so and he was like, whatever. Well, Rick had taken a rubber switch covered bumper, you know, one of the buttons you would push, yep. and he had mounted it way down on the lower roll cage on a little tab of metal that stuck out. Hooked a couple wires to it, ran it up behind the door bars, behind our padding on the door, and ended right there. It did nothing. This button. And sure enough, at Val Belair, before it was over, almost every member of John Paul Cabana's crew had leaned in that window and had scoped out that button on that floor of that race car as it. if it was nitrous oxide. Oh, I love it. And it was like, I'm like, Rick, you're so mean. So mean. <sighs> there was a guy last summer at Devil's Bowl, and I'm not going to mention his name, but he showed up one day in those roll bar padding on the back, like by the fuel cell of his modified. And, of course, the car, the back of the car is open. And everybody's, that guy, what the hell is this? Yeah. It's just a roll bar. <laughs> like, he just did it to piss people off, just to get people yeah. to look. It's, I love the mind games like that. Yeah, well, Butch Lindley did that same thing years and years and years ago when he came to Catamount. He had bolted a, back then when they used to use Chevrolet uh, valve cover pans, to mold lead in. It was kind of unique when you're done, you know, I had Chevrolet in the, in the lead. Well, he used one of those and he had had a piece of aluminum mounted to the right front floor pan of his car, which is like no sane person puts 50 pounds of lead on the inside of the car up on the right, right front, front corner. Yeah. But you would be a little astounded to see how many guys actually copied that for a short amount of time. And we're like... I don't think so. <laughs> Mini stock guy. God, now, now you're getting the stories up. Mini stock guy, who is now a successful modified guy, his first year had a good crew chief working for him. And you're not supposed to have a crew chief in the mini stocks, but uh, they had a bunch of lead on the floor of the right, on the right side, right in the middle of the floor in the pad, where the passenger seat would be. And it looked like 100 pounds of lead. Everybody started bolting. It was foam. It was just white <laughs> styrofoam. Yeah. And they wrote their car number and put a bolt through it just to make people think. We did that with an IMSA car. Um, we put a fake Sears plastic battery up in the, up where the real battery was supposed to be and took the real one and moved it to the back um, behind the driver's seat. And we had this Sears plastic battery. And we get a joke out, we'd throw it to somebody and he'd like freak yeah, yeah, yeah. out. But. Let's take a quick break from our conversation. 
New England weather is unpredictable, and when the power goes out, you'll need a backup plan. That's why you should call Bushy's Generator Sales and Service in Springfield and Brookfield, Vermont. Bushy's is the number one Briggs & Stratton dealer in the state of Vermont, and they'll help you every step of the way, from sales and installation of Kohler and Briggs & Stratton home standby propane generators to service and maintenance on all makes and models of generators from 10 kilowatts to 200. Bushy's Generator Sales and Service has been in business for 10 years, and they cover all of Vermont and New Hampshire as well as Massachusetts, Connecticut, and New York. If you need a backup plan, call Bushy's Generator Sales and Service at 802-591-1903 or visit their Facebook page or bushysgenerator.com. Plus, you know, you can always talk racing with Ben because he's won a lot more races than I ever have. Bushy's Generator Sales and Service of Springfield and Brookfield, Vermont. We keep your power on. Barry Tile and Morrison Clark Incorporated have got you covered, literally. They're your number one stop in central Vermont for all types of flooring, whether it's tile, carpet, hardwood, or any other type of flooring, indoor or outdoor, for your home or your business. Barry Tile staff are qualified installers who can offer you real-world flooring experience and knowledge that you don't always find in the big chain stores. But you don't need our endorsement. They've been family-owned and operated since 1972, which means... They're celebrating 50 years in business in 2022, and that stands for itself. And hey, not only are they great at what they do, they're racers too. You got it, man. Check out Barry Tile's Facebook page to see some examples of their incredible work. You can call them the old-fashioned way, 802-476-0912, or just stop into the showroom, 889 South Barry Road in Barry, Vermont. Make sure that you tell them that the guys at Uncommon Deeds sent you. Thanks to all our sponsors who help us bring this show to you for free every single week. Now, back to our show. So, kind of take a break for a while. What draws you to giving road racing a chance in the mid-80s? It was something new. The the guys that had owned the A-car, the Piscales and, and them, something they wanted to do. And I sure as heck owed them a lot. So if they had said fly jet planes, I probably would have. But no, and I really enjoyed it. I I really did. Um, What I liked about it was the amount of seat time versus the effort. Um, The most frustrating with with the stock cars was, if you could work all week, you go to Oxford, and so many crashes, you were anywhere, crashes through the first lap. You're walking around like a cocaine addict for two hours wondering what you're going to do with all this damn energy. And say nothing about come layer in some anger and frustration. You, you know, you could, you might off your somebody for that kind of stuff. But when we got there, some of the races were 24 hours long. And because there was three drivers, there was more of a, a team kind of camaraderie. And you were there for 24 hours at the racetrack. So you had a lot of the, the good stuff with not as much of the bad stuff, you know, the hurry up and waiting in line, the traveling and everything else. And like I said, it was, it was all new. And we actually did quite well um, considering. And, and another thing that I really enjoyed, and I didn't realize it until the road racing, was how much I liked racing at night. Um, because I know one of our crew guys would constantly keep track of lap times. And because of our driver situation, I always drove at least two back-to-back stints at night. And you could develop this amazing rhythm at night with no distractions. 
because I'd come in and they'd like, he'd go, you didn't slow down. Everybody else is slowing down at night. If anything, you're running a little faster. I said, well, it's a little faster because it's the cool night air and the motor's putting out a little more horsepower. I said, but no, I said, I absolutely love it. I mean, your braking points, all that stuff is, and that was one thing I, I really liked about the, the, the race car was the rest of the world kind of, remember I said you kind of molded into the car. Well, when you mold into the car, everything else dissipates. There's no other distractions. I mean, you could be having an IRS audit or, you know, your, your stock could be dropping 50% or whatever. None of that even enters your mind. And, and I know, actually, I just thought of a story. I don't even know if I dare to tell you. But Come on. We were, we were at Walk, not Watkins Glen, Lime Rock. I got an opportunity to drive a, a Formula One vintage training car. Now, don't get me wrong. This isn't Alan Prost's car. These are, you know, vintage cars. It was a Cooper. So if you know anything about Formula One cars, especially Formula One training cars, it was a, it was a Cooper. Well, it was having issues on the straightaway. It was, like, missing at high high RPM. So they said, well, you know, would you take this thing out and see if you can figure out what the heck is going on? Big mistake. <laughs> so I'm out there running, and I don't know if you've been to Lime Rock, but the front straightaway is is pretty long. Yeah. And, and you get a good head start because you come down a hill. So I'm running down this front straightaway, and I get about – start finish line this thing starts to miss a little bit you know and i'm like and i'm trying to i'm sitting there in the car going i don't know how fast trying to diagnose this engine misfire well something must have woke me up at some point because i said huh there's a corner coming up i might want to focus on that and if you know anything about these cars the tires on them would be the equivalent of on ice versus blacktop, which caught me completely off guard. So I'm like, okay, and the brakes aren't, you know, six discs. It's not today's F1. No, no, no. <laughs> so, and of course, the driver's half asleep because he's trying to figure out what's wrong with the motor. Well, when he comes back awake, he realizes the corner coming. So I got on the brakes, realized almost instantly that those weren't going to work. <laughs> realized that. I started to throw the car sideways thinking, you know, I could just, you know, scrub off speed going sideways. Nah, that wasn't working either because the tires were as hard as rocks. And this thing, I think, in my mind, it felt like I picked up speed. So now I'm realizing, holy crap, I'm going to leave this track going sideways at, I don't really know how fast, but a lot faster than I really want to. And all I could think of was, I'm going to destroy this guy's car and this thing is expensive not thinking that I probably was going to get squashed to boot. So at the last second, I just turned it and drove right straight off. Well, another thing is, although those tires sucked on blacktop, they were excellent in the dirt. (laughs) (laughs) I had more car control, quite frankly, out there in the dirt than I had on the blacktop, which I was quite relieved, by the way. Uh, So I straightened the car up, kept it running, drove back to the pits and elected to not be driver and mechanic at the same time <laughs> wow. yeah, yeah exactly uh um you how you raced you know uh, it was like camaros and firebirds and stuff right um well several no, years actually 
the first race was the 12 hour at Sebring, which was a regular IMSA full blown race. We were in a Porsche 911 full blown race car, but it had its quirks too. It had a standard transmission, but with a push button clutch. Well, let me tell you what, when you're an old dog, you don't teach you new tricks. And the, the weak link to a Porsche 911, I found out, was the push rods, which means they don't like to be over-revved. Well, when you've got a push-button clutch, wow. it's easy to over-rev. But we, we were running pretty good. But another thing about that race, which was kind of eye-opening, is when you're going down the back straightaway at Sebring, and I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's, it's probably the longest straightaway I've ever been on, and you're in a car that's going approximately, I don't know, 150 or better. When those GTP cars go by you at over 200 miles an hour, you honestly think you're stopped, which is how I got in trouble. Because I was going down the back straightaway. I, I was sure I was in the highest gear possible, and I was right on the floor, and I thought I was, you know, basically the blacktop behind me was catching fire because I was going so fast. And I looked at my mirror and I saw this set of headlights and I realized it was a GTP car because, I mean, they're like the sun. And then I put my head down and it went by me and I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. this was almost as embarrassing as when Earnhardt was at Cayuga. But anyways, it goes <laughs> blowing by us. He killed him that day, by the way. Oh my God, that was a joke. Yeah. And I reached down to see if I was in the highest gear possible. Well, guess what? Do not push the clutch on a Porsche 911 when you're at top speed wide open because the motor does not like it. So it bent a couple of push rods, which I was, how do I say, not chastised, but I would, hadn't risen to the top of the heat at you, that point. With this push button, do you have to lift or is it you just mat your foot on the throttle and, and push and shift Well, I, I would lift. Yeah. Just because it's it was so foreign to me, you know, yeah. and, it, and it, so I would lift, which, and again, the the coordination, it's hard <laughs> to, it. yeah, it's really hard. I drove a shifter car once and wrecked it because yeah. I just couldn't, couldn't. Yeah. But what I did like about that was at Sebring, there's a set of corners that are fairly sharp. And in the, in the, we were in a GTU car. There's three classes, GTU, GTO, and GTP. So we were in the slowest class there. But in the corners, we could maintain a speed pretty close to the GTP cars. And what used to bring a smile to my face, and this probably will tell you what kind of a sick individual I am, if the GTP car caught you not in time to pass you before you got to the corners, he would have to follow you through that whole section of track. And if you want to hear an ugly, angry car behind you, it's a GTP car trying to keep the spool up on the turbo when he's following you. Because it's, it's nasty sounding. Because they are trying to find a, every gear they can to keep that RPM up, to keep that turbo spinning so they can maintain their horsepower. Sure. So that kind of, and then, but the but then we raced, I think it was to the Firestone Firehawk series, which was probably the most fun. And there again, lack of pressure, something different, a lot of seat time. Of course, I was the number one driver, which didn't, didn't mean a whole lot, but was all of this with Pizzagalli or yeah, all of it was. Yep. Yeah. And um, I think I don't think there was anything between that. And those were were fine. 
Um, because when we, I would qualify the car, I'd usually start the car, and there's a there's kind of a famous picture running around somewhere that I'm not really proud of, but in some ways I am, but not in others, because there was like 109 or there's like two divisions, two classes. And this time we were in the faster class. And most of the cars were like Porsches, 944s, you know, Mustangs, Pontiacs, and, oh, the Nissan 280 or 26, I don't sure, remember what yeah. it was. But they were pretty fast cars. Well, the Porsches had an advantage because they would get better fuel mileage, they could brake later, and they handled a little bit better. But we had more horsepower. So they would usually qualify better than some of us. Because I think we, at, at Lime Rock, or at Watkins Glen, I think we qualified, I don't know, the pitcher would tell you, but I think it was like fifth or sixth. It was me and a Nissan, and then there was four Porsches in front of us. So at the pit meeting, they're like, hey, you idiots, this thing is 24 hours long. Try not to wreck everybody in the first corner. Yeah. Well, some people just don't listen. <laughs> so at the start of the race, of course, the speeds are low, and, and the Nissan and I had the highest straightaway speeds of the car, any cars there. So what do we decide to do? Mm-hmm. So both of us pull out the start, and we're, we're the first two to the corner. Well, luckily, I had listened slightly better than the Nissan. And to my advantage, I was on the outside. So any stupidity that I would have partaked would have thrown me off the course and pretty much just ruined my day, not everybody else's. Well, the Nissan didn't have that advantage and wasn't even as, as intelligent as me and probably was racing me to the first corner as well. So we both entered the first corner at Watkins Glen at, I don't even know how fast, not, not super fast, with a field of God knows how many behind us. Well, he proceeded to lose it. Well, luckily, I had was either upside him or just past him that I could avoid him. Well, I looked in the mirror, and there was dust and cars going every way, which, there again, to my sixth sense of, I was pleased as hell. Yeah, you won. Yeah, well, no, I don't know. I was 24 hours left to go. Well, you won that corner. Yeah, I won that corner. So we led for a number of laps. But <laughs> but there's a, then I saw after there was a, a photograph of, Above, and I don't even know how they got it, but it showed us two idiots going by these four Porsches down the front straightaway, leading to the mayhem that followed, which luckily I could only take slight responsibility for. Of course, at the time, I took none. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no way. There was that idiot. I didn't wreck. Yeah. Got a little dirt on my tires now and then, but hell, I can, yeah. who was first across the line in the next lap? That's all that counts. Yeah. <laughs> But, it, but And even there, there was a lot to be learned because the factories were all there, GM factories and yeah. Ford and everybody else. So we got a lot of help from that. And when I say help, verbal help. There was no financial help, no parts, everything else. But they explained a lot of stuff to me. And because we were running in the front, we, we got a lot of their attention for a while until we would crash and then they would just disappear. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever win anything? No, no. I think we finished... Get you third at Ohio. Could be. Yeah, at Nelson Ledges. Yeah, that, actually, the only two cars that beat us were both factory teams. Um, that was actually our first. Yeah, I forgot about that. That was, I think that was that was SCCA, wasn't it? I don't think that was IMSA. It was in a Bertone 9, X19, if I remember. Yeah, I had 
you know, a little off-road incident that night too, but um, got away with it. I got away with a lot of them now that I think about it. Yeah, um, lack of judgment. But, yeah, that was a good night. We finished third. We, we had a good night or good day at Lime Rock too. I don't know where we ended up finishing, but it was – Remember at the time it was fairly good. Yeah, it, it was enjoyable. We, we got caught a couple times with some tire changes where we were behind the eight ball, which I don't know, mostly my fault, I guess. The rules change, but yeah. And there again, I got to see the different management styles between a Tom Curley and say an Imser and SCA. SCA says once line up, and it may be under their breath. Yeah, and they don't give a rats butt if you're there or not so it was like i went from i don't want to say a dictatorship to a very relaxed and especially and what dictatorship I, is fair by the way with Tom. right yeah right and but the downside to that was and after 81 i guess it's hard for me to say that but the rules the amount of cheating at those imsa races was stunning because we became friends with a another team who had a Camaro, and at Lime Rock, we, we I was past him, you know. So after the race, we were talking. He goes, "Wow, you guys must really be doing a lot to the motor." We're like, and he went on the list of stuff that they had done to their car. I mean, I was like shocked we even went by him, and so he assumed that we were, you know, doing what they were doing. So, so that part of it, I, I can't say as I really liked. If, if if it had been, you know, but the, there wasn't a lot of money involved. I don't even know if there was prize money, to be quite frank with you. I'm sure there was. Well, with SCCA, probably not a lot. Well, that was only once. The rest of them were all IMSA. Okay. So I don't know what was available. And no, I just know there was a lot. Of, and I remember driving in the pits at, I think it was either, it might have been Road America or Watkins Glen. It was one of the two. And it was a Thursday. And I'm like, doesn't anybody work? I mean, this place was just wall-to-wall people. And I'm like, holy smokes. I mean, we had one race one night at Watkins Glen where I saw more carnage. I, I just couldn't believe it. There were brand-new 944s upside down on the side of the track because it had, it was dark and it started raining. A little bit of fog walked in. It must be Watkins Glen now that I think about it because a little bit of fog walked in, and, and oh, my God, cars were just... It, it To this day, it stuns me nobody got killed, considering there were roll cages in the cars, don't get me wrong, and but there were no fuel cells. And why there weren't more, well, actually, there was a fire in the pits. And actually, you know the guy in Hall and Oates, the guy with the black hair, the yeah, mustache, sure, sure. he was actually pitted right side of us. Um, and he's the one that had the fire. Yeah, yeah it was... <laughs> Oh, yeah. No, it wasn't Daryl Hall, but it was the other guy, John Oates, yeah, I guess. He yeah. was, so there was a lot of those, like Scott Brayton, the guy that got killed at sure, Indy, was yeah. parked right side of us. Because I remember him because they were making fun of our steering wheel because we had a stock car steering wheel. Oh. And, and in their cars, they have these little tiny things. So he kind of thought that was cute. I was thinking, no, I think yours is cute and ours is manly, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Tommy Kendall was there. There were a lot of really good guys because, I mean, those guys didn't have the, the race schedules that you know stock cars did. So anytime there was something going on, they would they would gravitate. I mean, at Sebring, I think I even think AJ Point was at Sebring, but he was in a GTP car. So he was. did anybody know of you 
or any of your accomplishments? Actually, yes. At at Watkins Glen, I remember hearing over the PA once that something about that I would be good starting from the rear because of my experience with the stock cars, you know, huh. starting in the back. I just remember hearing that over the PA at Watkins Glen. And, and other than that, not that I know of. I, I never told anybody anything. Nobody ever asked. And, and, we, and because I don't want to say it was a click, but there wasn't as much communication between teams because we were all strangers. Now, there was some, you know, if somebody happened to know somebody, there was a guy there I remember from, I don't know, some uber-rich guy from New York City, because I remember at the time I was in commercial real estate, so I kind of gravitated to, to, you know, to him till I found out his monthly rents were like 10 or $11 million a month. And I said, I might be out of my league. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, forget it. <laughs> my mistake. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're on this kind of new adventure it's different you said you're enjoying it you're having fun what brings you back the next year to the american canadian tour and the 21 well my first instinct would be stupidity um <laughs> that's the look you gave on your face <laughs> people listening can't hear it yeah. <laughs> maybe but, you can feel it no um for absolutely all the wrong reasons. Um, I was, again, I had a business, I had commercial real estate, I had a personal life. They were all, one of them was probably more than I could handle. All three of them were a nightmare. Um, the business, you know, we had close to 10 employees most of the time. When we started out the business, they were all young guys. And it evolved to the point where some of them actually died. And the amount of responsibility that I felt, making sure paychecks cleared every week, making sure mortgages were paid on commercial real estate, making sure tenants, commercial tenants paid their bills. I mean, I could go on for hours with the creativity that was needed in accomplishing all that. Um, so when it came the weekends, then my personal life, you know, what 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 is what am I gonna do? You know, I, I it seems like you're someone who's all kind of hands on. You want to do it. You're not delegating to other people. Well, yes and no. I mean, there's certain things that you the buck stops with you. I mean, the paycheck stops with you. The the you know securing the mortgage, paying the mortgage stops with you. Writing the leases and making sure tenants abide by those leases, stop with you. The day-to-day -day operations, no. We, we had some, you know, fairly good people. And even with the eight-car, you know, there was equal distribution of, of the workload then, which is why I think it was so successful that there wasn't one, you know, tyrant overlooking everybody else because I've seen those operations, and they usually end up with the tyrant having a heart attack or being overthrown by the servants or peasants, however you want to yeah. label it. So, and I didn't want to be either one of those. I, I know the devastation that guillotine can produce. I didn't want my head in that thing. So, and there comes a point where you have to. You're at a you're at a point in your life where you got two choices. You can suffer a nervous breakdown if you want. It's not going to help the cause. It may give you some relief being, you know, out of circulation for a while but it's like being drunk you're gonna sober up dude so that's why i never drank i always said everybody oh what you you know i think at the oxford 250 the announcer goes oh you have a swig of wine i'm like no 
He's like, oh, you must. He said something to the fact that I was really cool because I, I'm like, no, I had nothing to do with that. I'm handicapped enough. Don't give me any substance that's going to diminish that. So I've never done pot. I fairly rarely ever drank, if even to this day. Uh, I don't smoke um, for those reasons. I mean, my God, life is tough enough. Don't. There's no need to self-handicap. And, and, and life hasn't been all roses. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I had cancer in, when I was 30, 32, I think. I mean, sitting in a that, waiting that room. That was in the middle of your mm-hmm. comeback to ACT. Yeah, which I think was God's way of saying, dummy, you know, we've played this game before. You know, we exhausted it. Move on, moron. Um, but sometimes you have to be hit over the head more than once. But yeah, I mean, sitting in a waiting room, getting radiation when you're probably 30 years younger than anybody else in there is not a warm, fuzzy feeling. Mm-hmm. And and I got to the point where they had to stop the radiation so that they could get me well enough to start it again, which is that's no place exciting. Yeah. You know, like, oh, we're going to stop this and we're going to put you in the hospital. We're going to dehydrate you. We're going to get back to health just so that we can, you know... And don't get me wrong. Yeah, so we can get you. I mean, I got so that I was so bad that toward the middle, I was having to be wheeled in with a wheelchair, and I was shaking out of, I don't know if it was fear or just not wanting to be there. And I can remember the whole process. I mean, when it... What type of cancer was it, if you don't mind? Testicular cancer. And I noticed it, believe it or not, on an airplane. I believe it was the trip that Beaver and Bobby and I took to Montana. I noticed some discomfort then. I got back, and for some magical reason, I'm still not, I don't understand, I, I went to a doctor, and they did all the tests, and they said, well, we're going into surgery, and they went to surgery, did the surgery, and then they said, well, you're going to do radiation. Up until this point, it was like, eh, no big deal. You know, I wasn't thrilled about having surgery or being cut open and all that other stuff, but, um, and then the radiation part, I mean, I was a nightmare almost from the beginning, because... I remember one of my first appointments for the radiation. The guy goes, bring a book. And I'm thinking, I'm not an intellectual. I sure as hell am not going to read in the hospital because I don't intend to be here long enough. So I get in there, he lays on the table, and I said, why am I bringing a book? He goes, because you're going to bite on it. I go, what? He goes, yeah. He goes, because I can't give you any pain medication, and this is going to hurt like hell. And I'm like... Okay, I guess I only have a few minutes to think about that. Thank mm-hmm. God. So they take your, your shoes and socks off, and they take a surgical knife, and right here they slit open about an inch, and they peel it back, both your feet, no medication. Then they take, well, I think it's 10 needles, but I could be wrong. It could be eight. And they stick a needle in between every toe. And the reason for that is they inject a dye into you. And they want to watch the dye come up through this this artery vein. I'm not sure. I'm not a medical doctor. Because the whole purpose is they need to x-ray your lymph nodes. So by injecting this dye into your feet, it obviously penetrates your body, and they can locate your lymph nodes in your neck and under your arms and wherever else they are. And the reason for that is they build a graft for you to lay on. Because the only tattoos I've ever had in my life were because of radiation. They bring you in and they put 
I call them locational tattoos on you because they're trying to line you up with this graph they're building so that when you lay on the table that they can position you exactly in that position every time you get radiation, which is every day. And then they build this lead, I, I call it like an inside of a cave. It's a, it's a, it looks like a bunch of lead hanging down like glass or, or stuff yeah, hanging from a cave ceiling. And that lead is to stop the radiation. So what they're trying to do is radiate you, but target radiate you. So it'd be like somebody shot you with a shotgun, but you had, you know, an X on your chest. You obviously wouldn't get any pellets in that X, but you'd get the pellets all the way around. Mm -hmm. That's what they're doing with the radiation. So I'm like, all right, well, whatever. So I go in for the first one. I lay there. The thing goes "Mm," for 15 seconds. It's over. I get up. I'm like, crap, the worst is over, right? I mean, the cutting of the feet sucked. I told the doctor, and he goes, they did what? I'm like, yeah. He goes, huh. But believe me, they lie, and they do that, I think, for your own benefit. Yeah. So I'm actually with Steve, and we're in his Corvette, and I leave the hospital. And earlier that day, I'd stopped at Wendy's, and I'd had one of those um, baked potatoes with like cheese and bacon on it. So we leave the hospital, and I was living in Essex. I got as far as Pinecrest Drive in Essex. I said, Steve, you got to pull over. He pulls over. I started throwing up right there, and I never stopped for four months. I would be on my hands and knees throwing up nothing, just nothing. I can maybe remember laying on the couch and tears would be running out of my eyes because I was like, how can this get any worse? I mean, really? And... Then finally it deteriorated to the point they stopped. And here's the best part. <laughs> when they stop and restart, guess what they do? They extend it. Hmm. So if you're there for, say you're in for 30 treatments, and at 20 treatments they say, we got to stop because, you know, basically we're killing you. Yeah. And we're going to get you better, and then we're going to start again. Well, your math is, ah, 10 more to go. Now, now there's 15. Because of that. Because there was a yeah. break in it. So I'm like, well, I finally got through that. So, and I was like, just, you know that old saying, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger? That's bullshit. That's bullshit. Yeah. Because it may not kill you, but you never, ever, ever recover. Because you never recover psychologically. Because after this is all done, you have to do chest x-rays at a, a rate of, and I don't remember, don't quote me, but it's like it diminishes over time. So the next five years is super critical because the reason they radiate your lymph nodes is because they don't want the cancer to spill out into your lungs. Well, let me tell you what, for the next, well, even to this day, when you start coughing, boom, a light bulb goes That's on. That's where it goes. You're like, oh, I wonder if this is the year. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So life hasn't all been a bed of roses. <laughs> and, and I, but there again, I, I don't want to sound like I'm whining because I'm not. I've been more fortunate than I ever imagined. So don't take that away from this. I, I, everything has its positives. Although I'll be honest with you, you've got to dig really deep <laughs> to find the positive of that. Absolutely. But it does... I'd, I'd like to think there's a lesson in it. And, and it certainly wasn't the only, you know, health scare I had while 
recently this right here. I had. I can say it's given me a more open mind on the more. How can I articulate? I'm more. I don't want to say forgiving. Sympathetic, I guess, would be the right word to things that I didn't. I wasn't privy to earlier in my life, like brain injury. I mean, I got hit really, really hard. And, and I tell everybody that I was abducted by aliens. But the truth of the matter is I was somehow making pancakes. And some point I blacked out and, and in my personality I must have decided to fight it. Because in our house at the time, we had a big open floor plan, and we had this huge stone wall in the house. It was a part of a fireplace. For some ungodly reason, I decided to knock that down with my head. Why, I don't know, but I did. So I remember waking up on the floor of the house, and I was on, uh, we had a rug, and I, and I can't see blood. I can't see, I'm colorblind, which used to be oh. a pain in the butt at Catamount because the yellow and green flags were so faded, it was almost impossible <laughs> to tell the difference. So I always used to do what everybody else did. But I looked over at this hand, and it's like all red, and I'm like, well, that's odd. And then I kind of, I was still on my face on the, then I turned over, and this hand was all red, and I'm like, well, that's odd. And I'm like, how did I get on the floor? And I started feeling, well, blood's real sticky. Mm -hmm. So then I started looking around, and it was everywhere. And I'm like, oh, I don't think that's really good. So I crawled to the phone, and my wife had just left a couple hours earlier. And luckily, the phone was where it was supposed to be. Called 911, told them kind of what I thought had happened. And they showed up, and off I went. And to this day, the only thing we could contribute it to, because they found a really bad, well, you can see a real scar right there on your neck. Uh, that main artery right there had a, a clog in the, in the Y section. They think that might have had something to do with it. But they never found this until, so I, so I went through that, but I had suffered a pretty traumatic brain injury on this side. It, it took me, I went to Boston, and um, it took me about two years to fully recover. How long ago was this? You'd think I would know, but if I had to guess, I'd say 10 years or, or more. Because so I'd be sitting on the couch, and I, I would just jump up like this, and Jennifer would go, well, what's wrong? I'm, I'm upside down. And she'd go, I don't think so. But I would, like, jump up because I thought I was flipping over yeah. because of it. And, and, and being a person that thinks a lot, I, I was out of sorts. I mean, I, it would hurt my head so much to think that it was, it was like a runner losing a leg for me. It took a long time. So I became pretty, you know, concerned with people I didn't poo-poo anybody that they said that because I had blood here and two scars right here internally. And it, and it took literally, and the doctor said it was two, it would take two years and it did. Now, was I an invalid? No. Could I, my body could function? Yeah. Um, but what really got me in trouble was when I was hunting in the way back in the woods, I could get disoriented and I couldn't sort it out. I remember once I literally had to call home. Which is something that you said you never worried about. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I never worried about getting lost. And I still, and I and unfortunately, which was a double sword, because I had no fear, but then I also no longer possessed the capabilities to get me out of trouble. Mm -hmm. That was the worst scenario. Yeah. 
because I still was as foolish as ever mm. and as bold and dumb as ever, but I didn't have that ability to, to pull myself away from that, which actually resulted in a, in getting lost one day in Ontario. I mean, I was way back in the woods. It, it just turned into a nightmare and it's a long story, but I finally got out. But, um, just because I was, I would reach a point and, and I'll tell you how I came out of it. And, and I, and I'm not proud of this. I was walking a really dangerous line with pain pills. I, it was like a record. My head was like a record. It would just keep playing over and over and over, and it would pick up speed, pick up speed, pick up speed to the point you thought you were going crazy. The only way I could stop that record or break that cycle was a pain pill, an opioid. At first, I had to take a whole one, and it would stop like that. And then, and I can see how people could get hooked on those things. Those things make you feel amazing. So I was taking pain pills. And I was really getting concerned because I was counting them in my medicine cabinet. And I was formulating ways to get more because I was scared to death they would shut me off. And then this cycle would happen and I would go insane. Because, and there again, I'm not proud of this, but it gets you to the point where you really don't want to live. And I'm not being dramatic. I'm just saying it gets you so out of sorts that you go places where you really shouldn't go. So I was balancing those two. How much can I tolerate, but how deep do I want to go in addiction? Mm -hmm. Well, luckily, I had enough willpower because then I I got to the point where I could go a half a pill. And then I got to the point where I could go a quarter of a pill. Now I haven't taken one in probably four or five years. and But the spells became further and further apart also. So it wasn't like they were, I was consistently dealing with this battle every day. And the, the battle was, you know, spread out in greater spans of time as time went by, thank God. But I can honestly tell you that you could get addicted to opioids in a heartbeat. If, if you didn't have, and there again, I, and I don't know if this is tr- totally true, but I think it is. I think racing helped me there too because it gave me the confidence to know that I could beat it. You know what I mean? I was like, yeah, you can do this, you know, just, and I, and I had reasons not to, you know, I had a daughter and, you know, I had things that I cared about and, and I was back then a lot more materialistic than I am now. So my bank account was important to me and my reputation was important to me, which was quite frankly, there was a time that that reputation and what people would think and say and that not wanting to fail was so strong it kept me alive because I was at a point with this head injury that I was like, no, it ain't worth it. This just isn't worth it. And then when, it, And I'm just smart enough to sit down and go, Dude, you had cancer. You had Bell's palsy. You know, you've had this now this head injury. <laughs> you know, what's next? Can you deal with what's next? You know what I mean? I, and you, you, and there again, that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. <laughs> Bullshit. <laughs> well, we're here today. <laughs> yeah, true. Um, Man, and I never discovered this. And 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 this is really kind of drive people nuts. I know it is, but I never was a religious person and, and still not. I mean, I, I believe in God. I don't go to church every Sunday. 
But there have been times in my life where I absolutely positively know that somebody else has taken control. One of them was in the race car. Um, I literally felt like I was just a passenger. I wasn't, I wasn't contributing anything. I was literally just there. I know that sounds nuts, and, and I probably am. Um, and, and even the, the third one was I had a car accident. I, um, and this is how they discovered this. I was, it was a stressful time. My father had Alzheimer's. He was in the nursing home. I hated going there, seeing him like that. My mother was piling on the stuff for us to do. So I'd done both of them that day. I had my wife's car. I was going to pick her up. I drove by the Colchester Police Department. And I remember thinking, something's wrong. You, you should pull over. I remember there was snow, and there was a snowbank. And I wanted to pull over, but there was no place to it. At about somewhere within 100 yards of going past the police department, I was gone. I drove from there all the way. You know where the sharp corner is on? I think it's Blakely Road, mm-hmm. where the hedges are. Well, if you look right there, you'll see a few hedges that have my scars on them. I drove right straight off from there, drove over the sign. I was completely out of it. The sign sheared the fuel lines off the car, and the car caught fire. There again, not not to go spiritual, but a off-duty Colchester detective just happened to be there going by. Jumped out of his car and went, he said, when I got there, your hands were in a death grip on the steering wheel. You were completely out of it, and the throttle was still down. And I'm like, well, no checker flag, no, no let up. Yeah. And won the 250. Won the, yeah, dude, what's your problem? <laughs> <laughs> Can't you see I know what I'm doing? Yeah. <laughs> that fire is just to heat up the tires. Yeah. Um, I had no idea why the fire went out because most cars now are electric fuel pumps. With the car running and the fuel lines sheared and on fire, I don't know why the car went out. I have no idea. The next thing I know, I wake up, and I'm like, and there's two people looking down at me. And I'll I'll never forget this if I live to be 100, which for the rest of the world, I hope not. And the lady goes, you're okay, you're in a car accident. And you know what I said? Sure, right. I didn't believe it. And she's looking at me like, and then I just looked around, and I'm like, well, that would explain the ambulance and the EMTs and all the bright lights. And at that point, we were going down Main Street, Winooski. So I blacked out somewhere around the Colchester Police Department, drove, that's got to be over a mile. I went over the interstate right. on that overpass, yeah. completely blacked out, and never crashed until I got to that corner. Got pulled out of a car. I'm sure that wasn't, being the fact that it was on fire, probably wasn't done in a careful, methodical way. Right. <laughs> Loaded into an ambulance and never woke up until I was going by the diner in Winooski on Upper Main Street. And that's when they discovered this. They said, you know, then they went deeper and deeper. And, and But to this day, I've never had it. The scar on your neck. Yeah, they, they found that artery was blocked. Yeah. So they started to look deeper and deeper. And even this thing I thought was going to be a piece of cake, but it in, in the retrospect it was but yeah so it hasn't all been a bed of roses my friend but nothing ever is but like i said we're still here we're and, still here you know i i also agree with you what doesn't kill you makes you weaker <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, well, i think there's a threshold where beyond that it's yeah. it's no coming back 
But if you can keep kicking this stuff, are you going to race again? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> it is, it's kind of sad. I, I was thinking about when you guys were coming over. I'm like, my God, you know, you started with a bunch of two-by-fours and some plastic and a $500 car and trailer with nothing else. Now, I mean, this with the shop, I mean, there's a dually sitting down there, a diesel dually. I mean, I could personally finance the car myself, and but there's literally no reason to. Yeah. I cannot formulate a reason to. I thought about it a couple of times. I'm like, yeah, maybe you could go and just, like, you wouldn't be satisfied with that. Why would you put your family through it? Yeah. <laughs> what, are you crazy? Yeah. <laughs> You're lucky they stick with you this long. <laughs> Man. So... Is there something that you do to scratch the itch if you have some sort of competition in you? Whatever. Actually, that probably is my weakest thing right now is I am in somewhat of a, I don't want to say a a lull or a void or, or a state of total boredom. That might be more accurate, but no. Um, It is January. Yeah. (laughs) You know, we used to do quite a bit of snowmobiling. My wife wrecked three in one year, so that kind of put the kibosh to that. Um, I bought this Argo. We bought some land over in the Adirondacks, uh, 170 acres in a camp just recently. I bought this ungodly expensive toy down here that you walk by. So I'm trying to turn that into some sort of wildlife paradise, which it will never happen because I don't think anything could meet my expectations. Um, well, I mean, well look, look around this room. It's amazing. And, and that's kind of what, what I do. I mean, right now I, I try to find the deepest, darkest holes that I can find in the Adirondacks. I bought a little mud motor. I don't know if you know what those are, but they're, they're motors that allow a boat to go on really shallow water, okay. weeds, cool. and yeah. ice and everything. I bought yeah. one of those because I used to hike way back in and spend the night in the woods. And sleep, and and that's how this came about because I was there twenty four seven, which was quite an advantage. But getting older, and it's a lot of work, and so I wanted something to get me still back in there, but not have the physical demands of doing that. So I found that, and I enjoy that. It gets me where no one's, where I think no one's ever been, which which is just silly because obviously there's no place no one hasn't been. So I so that. But that's that's a short season. It's only in the fall. We've been doing a lot of traveling, actually. We we originally bought that fifth wheel out there. There's two motorcycles in that. We take that to Yellowstone. We did that three or four years. Rode around out there. Talk about a pro and a con. When you unload that Harley and you ride around the Black Hills of South Dakota or Custard or Yellowstone Park or the Bighorn Mountains, and when you come back here... It's flat here. Yeah, pretty boring. You know, so you're like, oh, there's that 250 syndrome again. So, yeah, I, I'm, I don't want to say I'm running out of things, but, but my, but I can't do what I, my my mind still wants to do things my body won't allow me to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we wrap things up with you, we're gonna hit our berry tile quick hitters. So uh oh. Quick questions, yeah. quick answers. These are the ones we ask everybody. All right. Uh, first off. 
I always give mine more thought because Justin gets asked the same stupid question every week. I'm starting to get, starting to get jealous of it. Uh, it's a good question, I yeah, think. Well, uh, right. So that means I've got competition. Yeah. Um, I get if, to call a friend. <laughs> you, you might want to. If know. you could have drove anyone else's car for a night, whose would you have wanted to try? Well, in 1981, I would have driven Robbie's car for sure. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, that was... I mean, you take a car that superior and put it in the hands of somebody as talented as Robbie, it was a tough year. Yeah. The guy's good. The car was great. Well, actually, Robbie's great, and the car was great. So it was it, – it was it was sucked racing for second, as I think the stats prove. <laughs> Seven of them. Yeah. <laughs> First loser. Cha-ching. <laughs> I did drive Steve's car at Dover. Um which really helped me more than Steve I thought. Poulin. Yeah, Steve Poulin. Um, because we went to Dover. I th- yeah, we set a track record, started on pole, let every lap. The motor blew. I got out, which was weird, the motor blew, because that was a, a, a gear rule, which baffled me, because previous to that, we had a little trick that we did, which I was sure was going to deaden me. But anyways, and I was stunned at how fast I was able to go in that car. And it was a completely different car. My car was, and my cars are, pretty much always super loose. Um, you got to maintain a lot of momentum, have a lot of throttle control, or you spin the tires real easy. Steve's car was just the opposite. I mean, you get down in a corner and you just drove that throttle to the floorboard, and that car would it would just turn. And, and it was like, okay, if this works, it's great. If not, you're going to be another loser. <laughs> <laughs> but it worked, and I, was, I, I, really, I really enjoyed that, actually. It helped my confidence, so to speak, because when you're a driver and you've got somebody like a Rick Gagnon or even a Pizzagalli or a Phil Gabody car or something like that, it's easy to question which is the stronger chain in the in, stronger link in the chain, you or the car. Mm. And I always felt that my skills as, a, as an engineer mechanic were greater than my ability to drive. So I was all, always had that in the nagging back of my mind was, well, you know, yeah, you you know how to set up a car and practice and put some port and everything out. But, you know, when it comes to these other Robbie and Dave and Bobby, you know, yeah, you better make sure your car's better than theirs. That that was always my mentality. Um, so driving cars like Steve's and, and others, and, and over time looking back and, and, you know, critically thinking about it, I'm like, well, I guess I wasn't. Yeah, I guess yeah. I wasn't quite as bad as I thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a nice shot in the arm. What is the dumbest thing you ever did in a race car? Oh my god, <laughs> that's limited to one. I, I, you know, I thought about and and there are many. I mean, many, but probably the one that cost me the most was at the milk bowl. Um, going into the third segment, I think Cabana, McCabe, and I were all tied, and we started that race, and I drove to the front almost, I couldn't believe it. It was like I had dropped from the sky and it was in second. And I was running down the back straightaway and I could see Bobby was in the lead. And I and he had gone in what I thought was obviously too fast for the car and he had kind of drifted up. And I caught him in a literal heartbeat and drove underneath him. And and he came down and we, and I don't know if I came up a little bit, he came down, but we, we bumped. And, and what was going through my mind was, oh, he don't know I'm here because... I was I caught him so fast that it would have startled me too. 
because I'm sure he looked in the mirror and said, no, nah, that idiot's, you know, half straight away back, no problem. Well, then we, so I thought it was over, and I would just cruise on and go. Well, somehow we got tangled up again. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I guess that didn't go as planned. So we slid through the infield, and I came out third and basically finished third, although I, I could have, I got underneath Cabana once and, if it hadn't been for that previous incident with Bobby, <laughs> Cabana wouldn't have survived that one. But I backed out and ended up finishing third. So that was one. But probably the dumbest, and I, I hate to double up on you, but this one is so incredibly stupid. We love dumb stories. We love them. Okay. I caught him out. I don't know if you remember, but they had this handicap system about where you finished in the heat versus how, that place you in the feature and all this other crap. So there was always this game in qualifying. You never wanted to win a qualifying race. So we're on the qualifying race. Robbie's out quite a bit in the lead, and I'm second. And I start gaining on him really, really fast. And I'm like, that son of a gun, he's letting up so that I'll have to win this damn race. And that'll st- I'll have to start behind him. In the, and I never like to start behind him because it's hard to keep up saying, I'm going to go by. So I backed off. Well, the, what I didn't know is he was experiencing mechanical failures and his rapid deacceleration was going to be even more rapid, which meant mine was even more rapid. So we come down the front straightaway at basically a crawling space, and I turned left to go, you know, to try to get underneath him but pull up side of him. Well, little did I know, because I was so preoccupied with my silly little game of qualifying handicapping, that Barkham and another car were racing for position and coming up at a pretty high rate of speed. Well, when I made that jerky motion to go left... Well, it caught Ron completely off guard, drove over our left front tire, went sailing in the air, screwed our car up. And then to add insult to injury, I find out that Robbie wasn't deliberately slowing down. (laughs) I felt like a genius. (laughs) Oh, yeah, there's there's way too many. Please don't handicap me like that. Finally, long road trip to a racetrack. You're driving the whole way. Who would you like riding shotgun with you? Robbie's answer was your Uncle Ted. Yeah, I know. Yeah. He, he's, you know who was, I, I'm not going to double up on him, even though I agree with his answer. John Casey. Oh, my God, I love John Casey. John I Casey was, um, I should, there again, I should just know when to shut the hell up. But, of course, John was our, on our, Hollers, you might even be able to see it, social director, funny guy. We, he would get a new BMW or Mercedes almost every weekend because he was sales manager, and so we would ride in that. And, and somewhere there's, an, there's another incriminating photo of a speedometer when I was driving going down Bolton Flats that I really hope the police don't get their hands on, which was completely irresponsible. I don't recommend anybody do it. It was dumb. But even all of us fall to peer pressure once in a while. And so, yeah, John. Well, how fast? I, I north Over of hundred beyond, yeah. <laughs> beyond. See, you want me to totally incriminate myself? Uh, that's I could say it was Photoshop, yeah. but I can't double up on the evidence. <laughs> <laughs> oh, John Casey, man. Yeah, he, great, he's a good great guy. guy. Great yep. laugh, great guy. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So. We really, really want to thank you for well, I enjoyed us it. in here. Um, I mean, the, the headache will go away eventually. Yeah. 
Us? Yeah, no. No, no, no. <laughs> That's all, what the wise All this say, thinking. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> this mind probing you've been doing. Uh, listen, I mean, you made a big impact on me as a kid from Bolton. And I don't think I ever saw you race. Um, maybe once at, at the opener at Catamount the last year. Um, I, I think but that's about it. And uh, But beyond that, you have such an intriguing story. And it all happened in such a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a lot of questions about Mike Berry and who he is. And, and I think a lot of fans are going to enjoy this one. And thank you for letting us in. Well, you're more than welcome. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Thanks again to Mike Barry for sitting down with us in person and, like you said, being incredibly open and honest. Forthcoming, I think, is the word I was yeah, looking for. A myriad of, of topics. And yeah. like we said, it got it got a little heavy yeah. through the end of that podcast. But it's funny because you don't get this listening to it, but being in person – he was definitely completely okay with telling the stories and he's almost smi- he was smiling through some of these stories and you know he's in a very good place now and that's great and despite you know the heavy back end there was a lot of fun throughout the podcast and different stories yeah um you know again i don't think that we expected that not that we expected I don't think any of our guests ever hide anything. Um, but we usually don't learn that much, that deep, that quickly, you know, yeah. like we really haven't, don't have much of a relationship with Mike Barry. I've, I've spoken with him on the phone probably a half a dozen times since August. And, you know, he had we, no idea how you got his phone number. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Steve fooling. Um, and he has no idea who's how Steve got his phone. <laughs> that's the key. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, I think the fact that we're racers and trying to tell racer stories. Um, and thankfully he started listening to some of our shows yeah, recently, yeah. which I think helped. He kind that, of got that, what we were doing. That has been a thing that um, has given us, I guess, a little bit of cred with some of the people that we approach that they don't know who we are. You know, we say, oh, you know, we had Bobby Dragon and Robbie Crouch and, you know, just name some of the names, Dave Dion or whatever. And they're like, oh, you know, those guys. Okay, Tommy Thunder. That's right. And then they're sold. (laughs) That's right. Uh. You know, and I, I think that that, that helped, um, not only with Mike, but with some other, definitely some other guests. And some other guests you're going to hear soon. Yeah, absolutely. If you haven't already, make sure you like, follow us on all the socials, Uncommon Deeds on Twitter and Facebook. Hey, just over 2,200 likes on yeah. Facebook. We are on a race to 3,000. And you, my friends, you need to get us there. Share. Invite your friends. You are... I'm not going to do it. Oh, man. <laughs> I, 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 saw, I saw the glimmer in your eye. 
That's all you're waiting. No, I'm not. I just shut up and let you go. You are the foundation Uh, of which we build our empire. (laughs) Brick by brick. Uh, But no, keep those going. Uncommon Deeds. How long ago was that? That was a while ago. That was a lot. That was like one of the first 10 episodes. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. I don't, yeah. I think when we were trying to get to a thousand, maybe. Hmm. Who was that? Like what? Do you even remember who the guest was? Nope. No, I don't. Holy crap. There's, hey, tell us. (laughs) Send us a message. Maybe Maybe we'll send you a sticker. If you tell us what episode that was in. <laughs> Listen to all of them. Tell us when Lord Thomas uh, <laughs> proclaimed whatever it was. Oh, man. That was, yeah, that was a good tirade. That was just, Holy shit. That just was. Went to a weird place. Uh, weird. It was, it was weird. Anyway, Uncommon Deeds <laughs> podcast on the Instagram. The Instagram. Wow. If uh, you're interested in becoming part of the Uncommon Media family, whether you want to get in sponsoring the Uncommon Deeds podcast, the Crunch Bunch podcast, which is coming back soon. We have four of them lined up. Uh, both podcasts. If you have a different idea, maybe something we can work on together. You have your own podcast idea that you think we can help you with. All you got to do is reach out to us, any one of those socials, or send us an email at uncommonmediavt at gmail.com. Like a gangster. Yeah. We're starting to get some emails in there, and it's people with some cool ideas, people that want to get in, and it's awesome. It's awesome. And Justin and I are never short on ideas, but... A lot of times we need other people to help us make them into into reality. Yeah. We came up with another big idea in the car the other day for a potential big media project this summer. Um, so come on, reach out to us. Let us help you. Let you help us. Let yourself help us. What? <laughs> Uh, yeah, what? It's a long episode. It's a long episode. You have been uh, listening to the Uncommon Deeds podcast, a production of Uncommon Media. You sure have. <laughs>